Back 20 years ago when I worked at Barebone Software, um, Barebone, the BB edit people, they had an email client called MailSmith, which was amazing. It was back when plain text email was still holding on by a thread to a thing. Um, but I think I'm not a fan of April Fool's jokes, period. But there was an April Fool's Easter egg where if the date was April 1, it would make an electric shock sound when email when you got an email. <laughs> and there was a preference that only appeared on that day that it was like delivered 20,000 kilovolt shock on new mail or something like that. And it was like dealing with the support email for that was so – it was the <laughs> best and worst of working there. Because the people who got the joke, which was most people – loved it right and the ones who thought they're right and then the people who didn't understand that it was april fools were so angry <laughs> and i was like i went to rich siegel the guy i was like rich i don't know how much you love this joke but the people who are angry are so angry <laughs> yeah it's um i know that you've talked a lot about like the apple pay the contactless payment sounds being bad like it you're being punished for paying in a store. And that's yeah. what it reminds me of every time. Oh my God. That's the worst. That is the, I, I still say the worst sound design I've ever heard. And I think they've mostly fixed it. Although maybe it's just the fact that it's been so long since I've paid <laughs> <laughs> in a retail store that I don't remember, but there's a certain brand of car- card that you, you, they make you, it's not contactless. That's the thing. It's like the one where you have to put your chip, you have to put it in, leave it in until they say take it out. But when they want you to take it out, it sounds like you're escaping from prison. Yeah, it's like, bzz, like yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't make as as bad a sound when you leave with the the security tag still on your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the only places I go, like everybody, I go to the grocery store and right. uh, like I go to Home Depot, and the Home Depot by us is very mad at me all the time for giving them my money. Uh, I, I'm trying to think if I've paid. Yeah, I did pay by credit card just the other day. I got takeout at a place that didn't do Apple pay. Uh, I think I've only in since March, I think I have only paid by credit card where I had to hand the credit card to somebody twice since March. It's really, it's just a combination of how few times I go out and how many places where I do go like grocery stores take Apple pay and I just boop. Uh, well, so we're in upstate New York. We like escaped the city for the mm. pandemic and, uh, the liquor store here, like there's like the handful of people that I see the liquor store here. They have an iPad payment system, but it doesn't do contact less. It's like some other weird thing. And they have developed this other process by which they spray your credit card with hand sanitizer before handing it back to you. And I'm always <laughs> like, aren't you spending more on hand sanitizer than whatever square would charge you? Like, I don't want to have this conversation. I'm just. It seems upside down. Uh, <laughs> so true. All right, here, let me just knock this out of the way right away and just get yeah. a first sponsor done. Linode. Let's do it. Oh, man, do I love Linode. That is where I host Daring Fireball. Uh, they are amazing. Cloud hosting anything. They have 11 data centers worldwide. And I mean it. They scale from, like, if you just want to set up a tiny little account for you and your kids to play uh, Minecraft and pay like five bucks a month on their nanode plan, which is awesome. They have that. It's awesome. If you have like uh, Marco Arment hosts the whole overcast network on Linode, he's got like 20 servers doing all the crawling for all that stuff. And it's, it scales from just tiny little hobby type thing to like, Oh yeah, I spin up uh, 20 VMs uh, when I need it and it goes up and it goes down as demand goes 
all of that stuff, Linode has you covered. 11 data, set, data centers worldwide, which is important if latency matters or for like regulatory stuff, which is actually probably the larger theme of this show. Um, you need to have your data in a certain country. Uh, it's really just amazing. They also have a new thing. It's called object storage storage. It's an S3 compatible storage system. Uh, really just amazing stuff. It is a great company. Everything's SSD, uh, just fantastic stuff. Uh, they even are hiring. So you can go to lino.com slash careers. If you're a sysadmin or otherwise some sort of technical nerd who might even be vaguely interested in working for a fantastic company like Linode, go there, check it out. But the best thing, they have a $20 credit. Use promo code TALKSHOW20. Get $20 credit. That gets you four months on their $5 a month plan. And the $5 a month plan is incredibly useful. Uh, and the URL to go to check it out is linode.com slash the talk show. So that's linode.com slash the talk show to check them out. And remember the code talk show 20 and you will get $20 of credit just for signing up from the show. So anyway, the big reason I wanted to have you on, I mean, I, number one, you're my pal. I like talking yeah. to you and it's been a while, but you know, it is a very interesting week, uh, to talk with someone who knows what the hell they're talking about with legal stuff because the House Antitrust uh, Subcommittee of the Judicial Committee had the four CEOs of Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Google. I just say Google. I don't say Alphabet. Yeah. Well, technically, Shinora is a CEO of Google and Alphabet, so it's not wrong. Let's just call it Google. I I don't know that anybody even mentioned the word alphabet during the whole hearing, and and we could I could do a whole rant about what a weird thing the whole alphabet thing has been. Um, I mean, nobody can mention it, like you know, and all everybody's quarterly results came out this week, and I actually took specific note of it this week. Nobody, not one company reporting on their results, doesn't mention right in the first sentence that alphabet's results and that alphabet explaining alphabet is actually Google. Yeah. I don't know what they think they're accomplishing with this. Uh, I think it definitely got fuzzier once Sundar became the CEO of both. And I, I think we, you should, I think it's a fair bet that just over time it's going to get pulled tighter. Right. Um, but yeah, I think before it was to give Larry and Sergey a place to play without having to worry about programmatic ad exchanges, which. Honestly, like if I was in their position, I'd be like, you worry about the programmatic ads. Yeah, but it it should be, I think, and and here's my guess, and I could be just totally wrong, but my guess is that what they should have done is make Alphabet a subsidiary of Google, declare its independence, let Larry and Sergey have it, do what you want. But Google is the name of the parent company. Google is the company that reports results and owns Gmail and YouTube and Google search and all of the, and Android and all of the things that we all think about when we think of Google. But that because Larry and Sergey are the founders, that didn't seem right to spin theirs off in the subsidiary. So they made the parent company their playground and made the real company the subsidiary. You know, and yeah, it's just I, I sort of an right. optics thing. It's not, I, 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 I don't even think it's a legal thing. I, it's just sort of, uh, well, you guys are the founders, so it doesn't seem right to stick you in a subsidiary. Yeah. And I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Sundar in particular because, you know, like Jeff Bezos is getting yelled at. It's his company. He made it. He made all the decisions. Right. Uh, like, it's fine. Like, uh, yeah, it's Mark Zuckerberg's company. Sundar is like the newest of them all in many yeah. ways, right? He 
he was a CEO. I mean, he's obviously a powerful CEO. He should be held to account. I think all that's appropriate. But when they're asking about the double click acquisition, it's like, yeah, he was, he was just a guy who ran Chrome. And so (laughs) he's just like, and I think his persona and his like personality met the moment well, but it was just funny to me. Like the performance we saw from Bezos where he just like repeatedly had no idea how Amazon works, like doesn't (laughs) land the way that Sundar could kind of pull it off. Yeah, I do think that I, I would like to sort of divide this up and talk about instead of bouncing back and forth like the committee yeah. did while they talked from company to company and sort of go company by company. But at the higher level, it is interesting. I, going into it, I thought it was a bad idea to have all four in one hearing. Coming out of it, and I watched the whole five and a half hours of it, I, I'm kind of glad they did it that way. I do wish that we weren't in the COVID thing and that they could have all been there. Um, but yeah. I think that WebEx held up fairly well and that, you know, it didn't seem like latency was a problem. Uh, I think it would have been a little bit smoother cinematic, cinematically as an observer if they were there. But I kind of like the Dolph 4 were there. But 4 is an interesting number because you can draw one of those Steve Jobs-style grids, you know, a quadrant – and there's different ways to group them together. Like it, it, you know, I think we'll get into this in detail, but, but Google and Facebook are clearly grouped together as being the attention of the Republicans on the committee because they're so hyper focused on the promotion, censoring, blocking, whatever you want to call it of what they deem to be conservative content. And yeah. Google and Facebook are together on that. But on the other hand, Sundar and Tim Cook are together on the – they're the CEOs, but they're not the founders, right? And mm-hmm. and and there was a definite – like I don't think you had to – I think an outside observer could have watched the, the thing and picked up the fact that Bezos and Zuckerberg were the founders, right? There was a certain comfort that they have that Cook and – and well, Bezos and Zuckerberg are not only the founders, they are the absolute god emperors of the ownership structures of their company. Right. So even if they blew it, <laughs> no one can fire them. Yeah, they and don't really that, answer to anybody. Right. That's like, that's got to be a level of comfort just in life, right? Like, I'm right. a billionaire, no one can fire me. Like, you got to feel good about that. Right. And I don't think Tim Cook is really, as somebody who is not a founder and owns nowhere near a controlling share of Apple stock. I mean, you know, I don't know what his net worth is and how much stock he has, but it's, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. He has no uh, ownership control, but he's clearly not in any risk of, I mean, I don't know what he could have possibly done at the hearing to to put his job at at stake, but. He seemed like the most irritated to be there. Yeah, definitely. I think that was an undercurrent of it. I don't um, think he wants to be anywhere near Facebook or Google's problems. And you know, Amazon and Apple, have a, as we'll get into, they have a pretty cozy relationship. Um, but you know, yeah. he, I just don't think he. I, I think you you probably know this as well as anyone. Apple really thinks it lives its values, and those values come from Cook. And like, yep. he doesn't think he's doing the things the other companies are routinely being accused of doing. Yeah, I think so too. At the very highest level, I think that, um, it did, I think the information even had that as a report 
I don't think you had to have unnamed sources to pick up on the fact, though, that Tim Cook didn't think the Apple should be in that group. Um, but basically, you know, there was this when this hearing first started coming about, and Cook, what Cook and Apple were the last to respond and agree that they would appear without any subpoena. You know, all four appeared quote unquote voluntarily. And why was Cook the last? Was it because Apple's always the last and that they don't, the one thing Apple doesn't do, regardless if it's uh, congressional hearings or anything else, is they don't talk about their plans in advance. Um, you know, like they, they, they spoke the least about their when are employees going to come back to the office you know, mm -hmm. type thing with COVID, you know, they just, they just don't talk about it, you know, whereas Twitter made like a big, Hey, we're going to make work from home permanent, you know, and it was sort of a, an opportunity to, to make it a story. Apple just doesn't do stuff like that. But I do think, I think in this case, it wasn't just that they were the last to respond because they're always the last. I think that, that there is some truth to the fact that Cook was resistant because he truly didn't think they belong, they, they should be there. And his demeanor, uh, I think uh, definitely betrayed that. Not betrayed. Betrayed sounds like he's hiding it, but I think that that's how he acted. And, you know, I know the New York Times tallied up the number of questions he asked, and the the other three all got somewhere between like 60 and 65 questions, and Cook got like 32. So he had like yeah. half as many questions. I mean, I even joked on Twitter. I forget what my jokes were, but I mean, he had time to go out and like cut the grass at Apple Park <laughs> between questions, and he wouldn't have been missed. Uh, he was he a. There's like a, a lot, you mentioned WebEx, like there's a lot of sort of just like background color to this hearing and how it came together and whether they were all going to be together or face separate hours because that was yeah. floated at one point. Um, you know, Bezos initially said no, like you're going to have to subpoena me and I'll fight the subpoena. Yeah. Uh, so they, the format of the hearing, as you said, it's quote unquote voluntarily. Like you don't, you say no to Congress, they're just going to subpoena you. Yeah. So you might as well say yes, right? And get what you can out of it. Right. So the format of the hearing was them all together because they didn't want individual sessions. They certainly didn't want to be compared and contrasted, uh, which was just something that we heard a lot about. Like who, Once you have individual sessions, the ordering of that session is also very political. Um, who goes first? Who goes last? Who comes off the worst? Um, this thing is six hours long. Who's just waiting around all day? None of these CEOs want to wait for each other. Like There is some ego at play here. And then – you said Tim had time to go cut the grass. WebEx actually failed for Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. And so uh, the, he was on some sort of incredible delay, uh, like 30 or 40 second delay for the first 90 minutes of the hearing. And oh, that's really? When, that's when they took a break. Yeah. Huh. So that's he didn't get any questions at, at the top, if you notice, huh. uh, because his, his connection was failing in some way. I thought that was – I mean, that's like – of course they had computer problems. <laughs> it would, it would have been, uh, we would have been missing some element of this, but it was six hours. It was so nuts that all those moments kept flying by and nobody got to react to them. Like, yeah. Right. Sense and runner yelling at Mark Zuckerberg. That's something that happened on Twitter is like just objectively hilarious, but it happened five minutes later. We're just like moved on to the next thing. And we didn't get to like sit there and laugh at it. <laughs> I've come around. Sensenbrenner is the guy I cracked the joke about. I mean, he just looks comical. I mean, he's, he's, is, let's just face it. He's old. <laughs> He he really looks like M.M. at Walsh, the character actor, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. And when you see him and you see M.M. at Walsh, you're like, I don't even know who else could play him if they made a movie. He looks like the old guy in The Big Lebowski sort of too, you know, the 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 other Lebowski, I guess, or I forget. Uh, you know who I mean, the boss. Yeah. His 
his hair's disheveled. His tie wasn't wasn't all the way up to the top. His glasses are not just a little crooked or way crooked. If he saw, if you're the bartender and he saunters up to the bar, <laughs> you've got to make a spot check. Like, hey, maybe this guy's cut off already. You know, he just had well, that he, look. And then I have to take credit for him because he's from Wisconsin. Like he's one, he's one of mine, and we're very sorry. And his first question is about why Don Jr. got. 12 a 12 hour timeout on twitter and he asked it to zuckerberg and zuckerberg just had to say i you know i don't know what to say to you sir <laughs> <laughs> on twitter it was a and lot they're not i mean and these moments just sort of like kept happening and because every member only had five minutes they were just like lightning fast insanity kept occurring yeah. but and i i hear you, there's like a lot of different ways to cut it i think the the chairman cicilline and the democrats got out of this hearing exactly the thing they wanted to get out of this hearing, hmm. right? They, they put – so there's the hearing and there's the performance right. in this six hours of chaos. Then there is the 1.3 million documents they collected in this year-long investigation. And then there's the documents they've released into the congressional record. Right. And they got to show – and actually all the CEOs were like, I can't quite see that email. Like, <laughs> I know. Sure. I, sure. I believe you. Um, but they I, got to show those documents to CEOs and say – you did it, right? Like you sent this email, uh, Jeff Bezos, saying you're buying Ring, not because you thought the tech was good, but because you thought they were the market leader. You sent this email, Mark Zuckerberg, saying you're buying Instagram to neutralize a competitor. And they got to release all those documents. Yeah. And that's the second wave of stories coming out of this. Yeah. I don't, the Republicans like live in an alternate reality. They performed their own strategy that was successful inside of that reality. I think that reality is insane. I think that strategy is annoying has little to do with the facts on the ground, but they were, they were putting on a different show for a different audience. But I think the Democrats were very focused on, we've done an investigation. We are investigators and we're going to ask you about the things you've done and the, the, the things you've done and the things we see, we've, we see you doing. It's just the format of the hearing clipped along so fast that that never, that never became a narrative. I, I think the way I put it on Twitter and, and in hindsight, I, I, I think it's, it's one of those thoughts that truly can be encapsulated in the length of a tweet that the Democrats to a T were focused entirely on antitrust issues, both political and legal with no partisan slant to their questioning in terms of a left, right part partisans are, uh, no longer really just implies that, but let's just say left, right partisan slant. Whereas the Republicans almost entirely were focused on left, right partisan issues with no questions or anything related to antitrust law or politics. It, it was really a bizarre divergence. And what I mean by this with the Democrats is like when you think about like a movie, like think about like Iron Man two or three or whichever one it was where Tony Stark's testify. I think it was two. He's testifying and Gary Shandling's the yeah, yeah. senator. And, and there's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a trope, you know, the, the fake congressional hearing in a movie that's not about politics, right? It's not like, oh, we're going to show, we're going to make uh, all the president's men or, uh, you know, something where it's historically accurate. There's sort of a, the, the way you write it is is generic Congress people and you don't write them as Republicans or, or Democrats because you don't want, it's not the point of the movie. So you don't want to, you don't, you, you don't want to distract the audience with this, right? Like is Gary Shandling's character a Republican or a Democrat? Well, he's probably a Republican, but... <laughs> I don't know. He was pretty right. unhappy with privatized military contractors in the movie. Right. From so, what I recall. 
<laughs> but, you know, in general, they don't. And the Democrats in this hearing kind of came across like that. Like, this is what you grow up thinking Congress people on an antitrust judiciary committee are like. And the Republicans were so clearly conservative Republicans that it it's hard to think of a single question anyone asked where it wasn't clear. Like, you didn't have to know. Like, if you just tuned in and didn't know what party Stube was in, is that how you pronounce his name? You'd, yeah. you'd immediately know from his question. Like, oh, he's a Republican because all he's asking about is bizarre fringe conspiracy theories about, about conservatives. It was very strange. There were the, the, I don't, I don't recall specifically six hours. I, I know. The audience forgives me for not remembering <laughs> I did. what I happened watched, exactly when. It was two days ago and I still feel like my mind has been flushed. Yeah, it's it was a lot. But there were towards the end, there was a sequence where the, the conservatives did ask very detailed questions about Google's ad power. Yeah. And its acquisitions of ad technology and how it operates on both sides of the market. I think that is as related to you know the claims of platform bias as anything. Like they all have different kinds of antitrust problems with a theme holding the investigation together for the last year is you operate marketplaces and you have unfair advantages in your own marketplaces. And we need to know if those needs can be made more fair. Google's marketplace is not the videos on YouTube or even the search results. It's the ad technology. It's their ad stack, where they're the, they're the first or second position in the market at every layer of the ad stack. And they, they obviously use it, right? right? So if you're a conservative and you're looking at, you know, AdSense ads on the Federalist or whatever conspiracy you're going to weave, you're like, well, why Why do they get to tell the Federals what to do? It's because they can pull the ads off right. or they can control the, the CPMs of the Federals ads. And that is, that's a great, I mean, it's it, there's at least a connection. Whereas when you're screaming at Mark Zuckerberg about, you know, downranking conservative stuff and all the data says Fox News is the most popular publisher, like now you're just in a different reality altogether. Yeah. Um, I do think that there is a, in a certain way though, and this is where I'm curious to hear what you think. At, at the, well, while we're still talking about this at sort of the macro level, to use Tim Cook's term for zooming out um, of the whole thing, I'm curious what you think the Democrats think they got out of this. I think the one thing that was interesting about the Republican slant, and I, and, and it's something that I'm glad that I actually sat and watched the five and a half hour thing. I really am because I don't think that reading it, I think reading it, I would have gotten the take that they were the republicans were purely kooky and and i think it's very hard to write an honest uh, objective article about it where if the article is really just just you know 700 word summary of the article that you wouldn't come away thinking these guys are just cracks crackpots but you watch it and there is something to it where you kind of do know exactly what they wanted to get out of this and what they wanted is they want facebook and google not to suppress the news sources and stuff that they like the videos and stuff that's what they want now whether that's good politics and yeah. good interpretation of the law is beside the point. It was very clear that that's what they want. Um, whereas what exactly do the Democrats want from any of these companies? I would, I mean, to the point that that's what the conservatives want. Yes. I think that's probably what they want, but they're already getting it. I know that's it, the it, crazy it, part. Like, that's the, that's the insane part. That's what makes that it. That has insane. very clearly already been effective with Facebook. 
YouTube is not like YouTube is not like a SJW safe space, right? It's like full of conservative video makers and creators. Like they're already getting it. It's not happening the way they think it's happening. I think what they really want is, you know, Jim Jordan got to yell at at Mark Zuckerberg and that's a little video clip. And then that night he was on Tucker Carlson saying, I yelled at Mark Zuckerberg. I'm protecting (laughs) you. And like, that is a a self-contained information ecosystem. And in some ways it's effective. It resulted in the presidency of the United States. And in some ways it's uh, deeply disturbing and a threat to democracy at large. Mm. And you can, obviously I feel one way about it, but there are other ways to think about it. Uh, what the Democrats wanted, and this is what I, when I was saying, Cicilline got what he wanted. That was a coordinated questioning sequence from them, right? All of those members, there, yes. you know, there's, if you look behind um, Cicilline up on the, the podium there, right behind him was a woman named Lena Khan, who is like the star of this show. As a law student, she wrote a, a, a law review paper called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox, which basically said Amazon has charted a through line through our existing antitrust standards to achieve exactly the kind of dominance that antitrust is supposed to prevent. She's just a law student. This paper is like a sensation. She has, she's sort of in that community. She's a superstar. There are older antitrust experts who like – They've come up with a derisive nickname for her theory of the law. They call it hipster antitrust. This is like a real thing that's happening. And she's up there behind Cicilline. She's in the video. People don't know who she is, but you should know who she is. As a law student, she kicked off. Oh, I remember that. I do remember that. I I absolutely. Now that you say that, I remember that it was a paper by a law student. I remember that. What's her name again? Lena Khan. Uh, She's been on the Verge cast before. I'm going to try to get her again, but she's great. Um, uh, and she's very smart. Every, you can read this paper. It's totally yeah. understandable. So the Democrats and Lena and the, the chief majority counsel, this guy named Slade Bond, they put together uh, a question pattern. They put together the fact pattern. They're the ones who scoured the documents. They're the ones who created the narrative. What they were trying to show is these companies get big. Good for them. They're great American companies. We appreciate it. Great for being good at business. Then they use their scale to identify their competitors steal data from those competitors in various ways, clone, copy, or crush those competitors. Um, And then they are often guilty of abusing their own marketplaces to prefer their own products, Mm. right? Or to keep out competitors, their products in various ways. And that is bad for the economy, bad for business, bad for small business, what have you. And if you go back and just sort of look at the sweep of the questions the Democrats asked, they kept making that point over and over again. Right, Facebook, do you you ran Onavo, the VPN. You did it to steal data about your competitors. So you could it was an early warning. You're emailing each other saying this is an early warning system. Tim Cook, here's some emails from the app store. Here's David Hanemeyer Hansen saying you're crushing his business because he wants to sell digital goods. Also, all these companies, Airbnb, ClassPass, whatever, in the pandemic, they're going virtual and you're still demanding 30%. Hmm. Like here are all these emails that we've produced from Apple where Steve Jobs is saying the and I know you're going to laugh because it's books and they didn't win at books, but right. um, no, no. I, here, I, but here are all these emails where Steve Jobs is saying we will be the only bookstore on the phone. We will not allow other merchants on the phone. Yeah. Here are the emails where they affirmatively said you will not buy books in the Kindle app, and we're just going to keep showing them to you and asking you. You did it right, and and that was the pattern they were in. And what got me was that every CEO was like, I don't. My office is going to have to get back to you in that. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, yeah, that doesn't seem right. I'll fix it. Like, Jeff Bezos was like, I'll fix it personally. 
and the and it's like your email. So you did it. These are your decisions. You should not be stunned that we're holding you account for your decisions. And I think that's again, do they, do they produce a coherent six hour narrative that anybody was able to piece together? They did not. It was chaos. Yeah. But that, if you look sort of in isolation at what they were trying to do, that was very much their goal. I I'm enough of a political. Oh, I was going to say junkie, but I guess if I was a junkie, I'd watch more of the non-tech hearings live. I just write, read the, read and watch the, the highlights and coverage. But I know that this like five minute format, you know, like the committee's here, there's the majority party, the minority party. It flips, you know, when Congress flips. But the way the hearings go is someone from the Republican, someone from the Democrats, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, everything in five minute chunks. And it's not just related to this committee. This is just how Congress congressional hearings work nowadays. But that's not like one of these things that has like a hundred years of uh, history to it. That's just what they've done. This format stinks. I mean, this is a fundamentally flawed uh, it, it it fails in every way. It fails just in terms of is it cohesive, and it fails in terms of either party, the one in minority or majority, getting anything done. And I don't even think it's good for the witnesses. I I, I think. In the case of a witness who's truly done wrong, the format allows them to run out the clock and you often hear them. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a fantastic (laughs) questioner and is so astute about that time. And, you know, we'll cut off like I think Jamie Dimon. She was just like, forget it. You're not running out of the clock on me. Um I mean, Cicilline said, stop saying yeah. these are good questions. Yeah, yeah, just so, stop. Just <laughs> answer the question. Yeah, it's like one of the ways they're trained is if you spend 30 seconds praising the question, <laughs> then you've only got you got 30 seconds left. And just do it every time, and then you just burn up a bunch of clock. Um, it's, it's just a terrible format. And I get the basic idea of it that you can't just ha- – it does have to have a limit. Otherwise, I mean, the damn thing went on for five and a half hours as it was – but this format, it, this is not right. I don't know what it, the difference should be, but it, it certainly has to change. And and the other thing that's so clear is so many of the, the Congress people are such so bad at using their five minutes. Yeah. Well, so you know the other format is it just alternates between in, in longer chunks, and people get to do their individual. The Democrats would get ten minutes for their Republicans, right. and we've seen that format again. This is a, a smaller. It's not the full Judiciary Committee a smaller subcommittee. They've been at it for a year. This is their moment and they all wanted a shot. Right. And so like the politicking of how it works, there's politics inside the committee. Jim Jordan was there. Jim Jordan is not on the subcommittee. He just bullied his way on because he's See, on the, <laughs> the larger judiciary committee. Like there's like a level of partisan warfare combined with the egos of the companies that produced exactly this result, like a math equation. Jim Jordan is uh, the biggest idiot I've ever seen. <laughs> Yet he's obviously has the tremendous ap- aptitude for bullying his way within his own party. Because just before you and I recorded today, my wife sent me a thing that he's there talking to Fauci today and asking him ridiculous questions about whether the federal government should prohibit protesting. He's like, if you're telling people they can't play baseball, why can't the federal government tell people not to protest? And Fauci like didn't know how to answer. He's like, I, I, 
I don't even yeah, know how to. I'm it. a doctor, and this doesn't make sense. Right. He was like, I'm telling people on a personal level not to do things that are risky. I'm really not in a position to tell the, to judge what the federal <laughs> government is allowed to do in terms of First Amendment rights. And he's like, yeah, but you said we could play baseball. <laughs> and it's like, how is this man? How is this man? He's like the Forrest Gump of, of the Republican Party. He's like everywhere. Uh, but that's why. I mean, he's loud. He, yep. He's you know, he like speaks very passionately and clearly. He makes his point. Like, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that and Congress is full of grandstanders and he's a great grandstander. Like, he is the I don't, grandstander. I don't, at that I don't think the Republican Party is like a functional governing no. system. <laughs> but I you can see what they're doing. It's very clear. You can just look at it and see, oh, this is their strategy, is to be loud and generate viral video of them yelling at Mark Zuckerberg. Jim Jordan's good at that. They put him on the they put him on the panel. Yeah. Um, I, I would say one of the highlights had to be when, uh, what's her name? Mary Gay Scanlon, uh, Pennsylvania. Yay. Pennsylvania Democrat <laughs> followed up from Jordan and said, I'd like to direct this committee's attention to antitrust issues and not <laughs> fringe conspiracy theories and without addressing it. And he went nuts. And yeah, it, of mind. course he's the, the anti-masker. Of course, of course yeah. he is, you know? The day after Herman Cain died, he's he's there and has to be told to put his mask back on. <laughs> and then they showed it. I don't know which. I don't know if all the feeds were the same. I was watching the New York Times feed. I just assumed they patched into the same feed. Um, he he just, he really struggled to put a mask on. It's very clear <laughs> that Jim Jordan does not wear a mask. Like, yeah. it's like, don't haven't we all like those of us who wear masks? Haven't you like? It's like tying your shoes now. You don't really think about it. Like. <laughs> mask yeah. on mask off <laughs> like i'm just saying it, it went every there were so many moments of pure insanity but because they happen in five minute increments you're like wait yeah i ha- i need to remember that that happened because it was it was crazy yeah uh, and that was by far one of them uh yeah that was definitely one of them uh the guy <laughs> the guy asking about what was Stube asking uh, about his campaign finance emails oh, his emails his ah, amazing let me take another break here and thank another sponsor, and we'll get into detail, sort of a company-by-company company type breakdown. I want to tell you about Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile, if you're still using one of the big wireless provo- providers, you can save a tremendous amount of money by switching. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything you do is online. They don't have like a big retail presence around the country, anything like that. Everything is online. Well, guess what? If you're looking to switch phone providers now, doing it all online and getting it all through the mail is exactly what you need. That's what they're created the company to do. Um, they save on retail locations. They pass those overhead savings on to you. And they don't, they don't have unlimited plans Guess what? Unlimited, every single provider that offers it, they it, the fact that they don't have to put the word unlimited in quotes is criminal and ought to be hauled before the Judiciary Committee. Um, they sell it in very sane increments, 3, 8, 12 gigabytes increments of 4G LTE data. It's great. If you need more, you just buy more in the increments that you pay for. You know what you're getting. And it's just like any any phone provider. You can keep your number when you switch. So ditch your old one. You can get a new plan for just 15 bucks a month. And that's it. The 15 bucks is actually 15 bucks. And they just ship it right to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com slash talk show. 
mintmobile.com slash talk show. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month, or certainly way, way less than you're paying one of the big providers. And again, that URL is mintmobile.com slash talk show. I would love, I, I would in fact love to see like Verizon, AT&T and T-Mobile, the CEOs before the same committee. <laughs> uh, oh, and yeah. I would love to, and I would love to see all three of them together. Like, like the big tobacco group. I, I really would. I, it's like, I got a couple of emails from people who watch this and they're all uh, like the same thing. Like, why haven't they done this exact same thing with the phone carriers? And it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. Oh, it's because the phone carriers spend, I mean, they are so entrenched in the lobbying machine of DC, like AT&T in particular. Um, you know, it's funny we, the Verge has like a policy desk. It's, I, I always, it's we're a big consumer tech website. Like, why do I usually come on your show? to talk about iPhone cameras. Yeah. But over the years we've built a policy team, a straight up, we have three reporters. They just write about policy all day long. They care about politics. They talk to Congress. They're, they're doing it. They're in it. Why do we have that? Why did that start? Because of the phone carriers, because of yeah. net neutrality, because the lack of competition in broadband access was so bad that we passed laws about it. And those laws got taken down the right. And like, They've already the phone carriers have that moment a lot, but in this administration, this FCC like doesn't want them to. It doesn't yeah. want them to compete. It's as near as I can tell. Um, I think if you know Biden wins and there's another net neutrality moment, you are going to see ISPs in front of Congress as it tries to craft new net neutrality re- legislation. But yeah, there's no. If you're looking for a place in tech where there's not enough competition. It's the phone carriers, like easily by far. Yeah. I, I, you know, and speaking of the Verge policy desk, it, it, honestly, it's like I'm watching the, the hearing and the Verge kept getting cited uh, it, over, you know, a couple of times. And I'm like, go Verge. I know those guys. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, I got to get Neli on this show. Like, but it's seriously, congrats. And I really do think it, it's well deserved praise that the Verge is established as a great source for journalism on these policy issues, you know, that, and, and, and it was so great. One of the things that I loved was that when they introduced stuff from the Verge, it wasn't like the Verge, which is some site that you, you know, and, and explain <laughs> to you what it, like if they would, if they had to mention me, right. If they had to mention yeah. Daring Fireball, they'd have to like explain it. the Verge is just tossed out there as a legit source, the way that they tossed out reports from, you know, like the New York times or the Washington post or something like that. It's like, yeah, of course this stuff comes from the Verge, which is just like, a premier de facto standard source for news on policy, these tech policy issues. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, I, I, I was texting John earlier and I said, this is the moment that I realized I was old. Like the verge <laughs> next year will be 10 years old. And like, I still think of it as a baby that isn't the wired newcomer. or whatever. Right. Like yeah. uh, we have, we have big, the New York times has 700 people on its product team. That is literally just writing apps and the website for New York times. 10 times more people than the Verge has. Um, so we have big competitors and I think of us as an upstart and this particular moment where we've just been pounding away at policy issues for a long time now, uh, it made me realize like, Oh, we've been doing it for a while. And like the, the particular staffers in the committee, like they've been reading the verge on their way up. And that to me, it, it's a new, it, I take that responsibility very seriously. Like we have to be good at it. Like I don't think, Again, when I usually talk to you on the show, I'm usually here to talk about phone reviews. And I think right. one of the things we are learning is that your experience as a consumer, as somebody who just likes technology and likes buying gadgets and phones and cares about the next thing, your experiences are now much more mediated 
by the business issues and by the policy issues and their interaction than by the thing you just want to buy in the market. And I closing that loop for like the regular consumer buying a phone is challenging, but I think we uh, just take the responsibility of, we have to do that more often. Like why can't you get HBO max on the Roku? It's not because they don't know how to write a Roku app. It's because there's like (laughs) Titanic business interests involved between gigantic companies that are not really looking out for your best interest. And like, that's, that's a big story. It's one we're just going to stay focused on. Yeah. Um, I, well, congrats. And you know, I, I don't know. I just thought it was very cool for me as somebody unaffiliated, but a, you know, fan of the site. Uh, I was like, yeah, this I is would awesome. say your criticisms have made us better over the years, Sean. Hey, yeah. you, you played a part. Yeah. Well, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, I would, I mean, it's just obvious. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, but it's, it, I link to the verge extremely frequently and it's, you know, when in doubt, I, if there's multiple sources for a story, I want, just want to link to the article. The verge is one of those ones where it's like, I just default to, because I know it's, it's good stuff. And anybody who's listening to me probably knows like, just, just, you don't have to go and count. You don't have to run it, write a script or something like that. Just think about it in the back of your head. You know that I link to the verge pretty frequently. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things I was thinking about through this hearing. And again, I appreciate that. Um, but there was a, there was a long sort of section of this hearing where Nadler talked to Zuckerberg about destroying journalism and pivots to video and all that. And mm. Zuckerberg did not have great answers. They asked sort of the same, this whole thing started, um, because of publishers falling apart because of the platform. Yeah. So that's where Cicilline began this inquiry over a year ago. And it just occurred to me as I was watching this hearing, the number of forces that can hold these companies to account that exist, just whatever kinds of things they are, has actually dwindled a lot. Right. And so like journalists, we used to have, there were lots of tech publications. They had lots of thoughts about what tech companies were doing, what Microsoft was doing. There were 45 Mac print magazines at one point, right? Like there was just this huge array of uh, publications and journalists doing the work. And then there was also Congress. And you would get signal into the marketplace of consumers from journalists who could evaluate stuff and come back to it. And then you would have like regulatory action from Congress. And that number of like people in the media who can hold the company's account or are able to or are comfortable doing it or um, aren't dependent on the big companies in some way, which is something that is happening to every every media company now is dependent on the platforms in some way um, – yeah, it was just like watching it. You're like, oh, Congress can still do it. Yeah. Right. Like their business isn't under threat. Like right. they're not running out of members of Congress. And you see these four, and it's like, when was the last time Jeff Bezos wasn't allowed to finish whatever fucking sentence he wanted to? <laughs> right. Like Tim Cook has, has exclusively finished every sentence he started since he became the CEO of Apple. Right. <laughs> and the only person who interrupted before that was Steve Jobs. Yeah. And like Congress is just like not have they don't have to they're not beholden yeah. to these companies and I think that's that dynamic of can well, we, how about just the fact that it was it was about forty eight minutes late yeah <laughs> just like couldn't get it right I and don't they were like think, you're gonna wait I don't think Tim Cook has waited forty eight seconds Tim I mean that is a difference one of the small differences between Tim Cook and Steve Jobs is, and again, there's big differences too, but a small difference is that Tim Cook is clearly very punctual. And ever since he took over as CEO, <laughs> Apple's keynotes, if they say a keynote is going to start at 10 Pacific, you, you, you know, it's starting at 10 Pacific. Like it, it, it is, I don't know that he's ever had a keynote that started more than 30 seconds late. And 
Jobs is, you know, we're usually around, you know, not too late, but I, yeah. I don't know that he ever had one that wasn't at least three or four minutes late, sometimes five, six yeah, minutes Yeah, there's late. some developer who was going to do a demo five minutes before the thing, and Jobs was like, your app sucks, you're yeah. right. I'm changing the whole show. <laughs> Every time. And they're like, Steve, it's it's 10. He's like, yeah, 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 don't worry, you know, and, you know, <laughs> you know, and it wasn't weird. It wasn't like, you know, like, you, you know, like you go to see the Rolling Stones and, you know, all of a sudden they make you wait half an hour before they come out because <laughs> then you're nuts. It wasn't like Keith that. Keith Richards has to get gassed up. Yeah, it wasn't like that, but you know, Cook is punctual. I, I don't know. I, I I thought it was you know, it probably was just somebody <laughs> trying to get WebEx working. <laughs> I don't think it was a power move on Congress's part, but yeah, they had to wait. They got interrupted. They got cut off. Um, I don't know. Well, it was just interesting s- to see. It was just interesting to see that. Yeah, that dynamic because we is even as journalists, right. we are rarely in that dynamic. With right. It's, it is very true. And, um, you know, and I, I think that was bipartisan. I, I guess the other thing I would say is that the other interesting political dynamic before we get into the specifics was the fact that, uh, and I think it was mostly Republicans because they're in the minority and they know that they could, you know, because they're in the minority, you don't really have a lot of power and especially in the house. Um, thanking Cicilline for the bipartisan nature of the whole inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that's very interesting and it's very, very unique in modern U.S. federal politics, right? It's everything is partisan and there's very he- little bipartisan praise for, for anything that gets done. And it's because their ire was at directed at the companies, not at the, the committee members on the other side of the aisle. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think Cicilline's done a, a really good job. If you go, if you want to see an even better example of that. It's every. It's like everything pre-pandemic is like one time period for me, so I can't tell you exactly when it was anymore. But um, <laughs> they held a field hearing. They didn't do it in Congress. They did it in Colorado at a university, um, and it was you know the subcommittee, so just a small group. And that's where the CEO of Sonos. That's where the CEO of PopSockets. Um, that's where uh, David Hanemeyer Hansen. Well, like that's where they had their first testimony in front of the hearing. And that hearing, because it was not in the Circus of DC because it was about hearing from companies who had, you know, had felt them been wronged. That hearing was like, when you're talking about a movie, what Congress is like in a movie, that hearing was like that. Yeah. It was very sane. It was very rational. It was very bipartisan. And that tone has carried through even up to the grandstanding of, of this week. Yeah. Who do you want to start with? I feel like in your show, we got to start with Apple. Right? Yeah. Let's get it out of the way. Um, I do think, I think over my, my take is that, uh, Apple's stance going in was we don't belong here. I think everything Cook did uh, spoke to that. I on dithering, you know, Ben asked me for letter grades. I gave Tim Cook a gentleman C uh, for his performance. <laughs> and and for those who don't know, I didn't explain it on dithering, but a gentleman C is a term like like George Bush uh, was famous for achieving gentleman C's. The idea is that it it you you know you go to Harvard and your family goes to Harvard. You don't really have to do anything good. You don't have to do anything really, and you'll just pass. You know, just just you know, show up and you get a C, um, you know, just, yeah, here's your diploma. Now you're a Harvard graduate. Uh, you know, he, he didn't try to do anything. Like I'm not giving him a C because he tried to get an A and didn't want to. He, he sat in the back of the class and never raised his hand and just sort of wanted to get out of there. And I think he achieved that. I, I, to some extent, I, I think that's correct. I think again, here, the story is not whether Tim Cook got Apple into trouble. Right. The hearing. The story is there's a pile of documents that the committee discovered 
that stretch back to 2010 that show a very clear pattern of Apple using the App Store to get leverage over competitors, big and small. There's a pile of document emails. That's actually my favorite kind of category of emails and all of the things that they've revealed. There's just emails, email after email from developers mm-hmm. emailing Tim Cook cold and saying, this sucks for me. Yeah. And Tim Cook forwarding it on to his team. Right. And it's funny because Tim Cook's team is Phil Schuller and Craig Fegarity and right. Eddie Q, right? Like yeah. his guys, like the, the guys we know and being like thoughts. Yeah. Right. Like they know these are choices they're making. And I think one of, in particular with Apple and Google, to some extent, Amazon, definitely not with Facebook really, but Apple and Google present themselves as very friendly companies, mm. as very consumer driven companies, as very value driven companies. I think, to a large extent, I buy it, right? They are those things. We see it all the time. But they are also very ruthless businesses. They're not yes. successful because they're bad at business. Right. Th- these aren't accidents. They are ruthless businesses that care about how much money they're making, that care about values returned to shareholders, that care about all of it. Just because we don't see it at the events doesn't mean it's not happening. And what this investigation has revealed with Apple is that they are definitely just as ruthless as the other companies. Without a doubt, they talk about it that way. Steve Jobs is emailing saying, we're not going to let Amazon um, sell books in the store. Phil Schiller is like this ad from Amazon showing somebody reading a book on an iPhone and then switching and seamlessly reading on a Kindle uh, uh, on an Android phone. That was hard to watch. That's like the thing Phil sent to Steve in 2010. It's hard to watch somebody using our phone and then another phone for the same app. We don't want that anymore. That is – that is not a thing that they would express in an event or a briefing, no. right? Uh, that is, that is ice cold. And I think it's, yeah, Tim was up there, but the case that the, the committee is going to make is you're using your marketplace in unfair ways. And we have to write a regulation that, that curbs that ability somehow. Uh, the, the Schiller story, you, uh, I'll, I'll, I swear I'll put a link in the show notes. The Verge had a, a good story just about that thread. Um, and I think it, a, a fair encapsulation is that Schiller brought it to their attention because Schiller watches com- competitors' ads. Uh, he <laughs> even had links to the two YouTube videos of things, which I copied and pasted are still on YouTube. Um, both ads are still there. Um, but the gist of it is the argument is – and this is 2010, so it's early days, but it those go-go years went so fast, it's crazy. Like I, I just brought this up again where I forget for how many years, but 2010 was still in the middle of it. It was at least I think through 2013 where Apple each year – not only was each new iPhone the best-selling iPhone ever, but each New Year's iPhone sold more iPhones than all previous year's iPhones combined, which is an insane growth rate. Like, like, like the iPhone 4S not only was the best-selling iPhone Apple ever made, it sold more than the iPhone 4, 3GS, 3G, and original iPhone all put together. And 2010 is only three years into the iPhone existing but yet it changed so much where Schiller's argument was when we first let uh, Kindle's app into the store, the idea was most of the Kindle books people had were bought on Kindle devices and it, they, they could also read them on their phone. And if they bought in, you know, again, this is how the app store has changed dramatically at that time. You could buy 
new Kindle books in the I Kindle totally app forgot on that, phone. by the way. I absolutely I, forgot that there was. I had too. I honestly forgot that that was possible. I, I that just it was so long ago and was such a brief blip. It, it just didn't last long. But the the and Schiller's argument in the email is that. You know, that was the idea. The thinking of allowing this was most of the books people had bought were bought from Kindles. But now there are some, we've sold so many more iPhones and iPod touch that, that was, this is how Schiller plural, pluralized it, which is always interesting to me because I know he cares. <laughs> iPhones and iPod touch than Kindles exist combined that there's, you know, we've got more devices than they do now. And I, you know, this, so that that old dynamic doesn't change anymore and it doesn't seem right to pitch this as something that you can buy on a phone, on an iPhone and then go switch to an Android phone and use it there. Um, I, I don't think that's me trying to make drama out of it. That's a fair summary of the email chain. Yeah, no, and I think that's right. And I think what we don't see is that they made a decision, right? Like as right. consumers, as watchers, of the company as people like, these are people we know we go, we, See them. We see them in briefings. They never reveal to us that they made a monumental policy change about Amazon's ebook business yep. on the email thread because Phil Schiller saw a YouTube video. Yeah, right? and there, like, there's a quote from Eddie Q in one in the same maybe the same chain, but it's something like that. And Eddie Q is talking about this, and he's like, "This is a big deal. That's gonna you know he, he just says flat out in email, this is a huge decision that's going to change the course of the app store." Yeah, and then uh, I think Jobs replies, "This will this will be bad for some things, but." Yeah. We're only going to have one bookstore on this. And like, yeah, they didn't win at books. Like yeah. they did. And, but they were, they were, they were able to shape the course of the market with that one decision. And that was in 2010 when they were small. And now they're even bigger. Right. And now their decisions shape even more parts of the, the digital services yeah. market. Yeah. It, it, you know, they made a lot of money this quarter. They had earnings last night. Yeah. What's the, what was Tim Cook's proudest thing? And, to be fair, I listen to the call. Tim Cook is like apologizing for Apple's monumental revenue, right? Yes. Yeah. No one wants to be a pandemic profiteer. I right. don't think that he's, yeah. he's, you know, he's not rubbing his hands in glee. He's like, look, we made a lot of money. It's because people yeah. need laptops and they're all working from home. Yeah. Um, but what, what was the one thing he was willing to brag about? They hit their target for services revenue doubling six months ahead of their own targets. Mm. Why did they do that? Because they are getting really, really good at pushing their services through the phone, through the interface of the phone. And you can see that pattern beginning in 2010 with this decision. And I think that's really what the committee, like that's what they wanted to show us. Yeah. That was very much the point. Tim Cook's performance. I agree with you. A gentleman C he didn't get in trouble. He didn't save the day. He just got through it, which was very clearly what he wanted to do. I even, it's this other question that they're going to have to answer for. I even think that they purposefully chose uh, the blandest yet, you know, professional background for him. Uh, I think they even desaturated his camera. It was, it was, it was a very desaturated uh, thing. It, 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 his skin even looked pale. I mean, it just was, it just was like he wasn't there. Uh, it, it was a very quiet appearance. Um, I think that there's two specific things that he said, and I'm not accusing him of committing perjury, um, but he was under oath. And I think what he said isn't true. And so maybe, you know, in some sense it's perjury. I don't know. I don't know he's going to get in trouble for it. But he said that they treat – he reiterated that they treat all developers the same. 
And I just don't see, I, I don't know why he would say it so plainly like that when it clearly isn't true. And I think a reasonable person, no matter where you fall on these issues, would agree it just can't be true. How could they, how could Apple possibly be expected to treat Amazon the same as a Joe Jr. developer who's a one person, 18 year old who submitted an app to the store? You know, like it, you, you, that, that, that it defies imagination, and you see the evidence that they submitted, where they were talking. You know, one of the things that came out was, um, you know, how how did they get uh, Amazon Prime Video into the video Apple TV ecosystem? Well, it, now we had, now we know for sure. We always suspected, but now we know for sure it's because it's fifteen percent right from the start, not thirty for a year and then fifteen. Um, yeah, so uh, I was I listened to that clip of dithering that you put up. I don't know if it was you or Ben put up a clip from dithering mm. where you're like they came at Bezos and Bezos' defense for a lot of things was this is just how business works. Like yeah, you're trying to make business legal, <laughs> right? And, right. Uh, and that was like it's a good argument. I'm actually very. I, I think you can look at this deal between Apple and Amazon from in multiple lenses and evaluate whether it was good or bad in multiple ways. So the deal broadly is. There were a lot of counterfeit, weird Mac Apple products on Amazon. Apple didn't like that. Apple wanted Prime Video in the store. Amazon didn't want to pay the rates, so they made they cut a deal. And I think that deal makes perfect sense. Like, right. and well, Apple and it, got favorable treatment on Amazon. They got a custom order flow. Mm-hmm. They got a custom like when they get when you're done, and it's like, would you like to buy some accessories? Mm-hmm. The accessories are Apple's accessories mm-hmm. or from their preferred providers. The pages are cleaner. The design of the pages is nicer. It's like my favorite. What does Apple want? It wants a cleaner order page. Um, and then, you know, Amazon got these terms on the store. Well, well the, the if other you're thing- any other developer, what that interaction, sh- and that's good business. Yeah. I think that is great business for those companies. If you are any other developer or any other seller on Amazon, what that interaction shows you is unless you have monumental leverage, you're hosed. Yeah. Right. Unless you are literally determining how people buy iPhones, Apple will never cut you a deal. If you are not literally in control of the platform, Amazon's apps run on for consumers, you don't have leverage to get a better buying experience. That to me is, it is good business. It makes perfect sense that they made that deal but that the deal was opaque and that the deal is conditioned on gigantic amounts of leverage on both sides means that it's probably unfair for everybody else as they just try to build their businesses to scale. Yeah. I don't know where, I don't know where you draw the regulatory line in there, right? but I see both sides of the argument. Right. Unfair, but not necessarily unjust or that it should be any other way. Right. It's unfair that if I played one-on-one basketball with LeBron James, that I'm going to get my ass kicked. I got no chance. None. Unless you have a popular video platform for his app, um, right. in which case he'll probably lose. Well, the but other like, thing think about it this so, way. So on the Amazon side, I know we're really talking about Apple, but think about right. this way on the Amazon side. Um, a company that keeps coming up over and over again in these hearings and this whole thing is pop sockets. Yes. Right. And they, and they make the yeah. thing that the button that goes in the back of your phone, cause all the phones are too big. Um, pop sockets and is all like, of our, yo, all Amazon, of our, all of our pinky fingers are too sore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like over time, the human race will evolve to right. the size of the <laughs> iPhone pro max. Um, uh, but pop sockets is like, Hey, Amazon, your store is flooded with counterfeits of our product. You're destroying our business. We don't need leverage. We just need to be fair to us. Don't don't overrank competitors. 
don't let counterfeits flood the store from, you know, other sellers who have no morals. Like don't recommend cheaper counterfeits when people search for pop sockets by name. Amazon's response was we need you to sign a $2 million marketing deal. Yep. That, I mean, that is that unfair. It's, it's absolutely on its face. It feels wrong. Right. But it's also, is that illegal? I think that's the question this committee, it, they needed that on the record. They needed to say, this is happening. We have proof. We have evidence. Now we're going to try to write a rule that just tilts the scale back away from the power of the big platforms. Mm-hmm. And I think the Apple Amazon deal is at once again, I completely agree. That was good business. It worked out for both sides, even worked out for consumers, right? The consumers got more stuff. They got fewer counterfeits with Mac products or whatever on the store. But if that's where you got to be to just be treated fairly, then something is wrong. Well, I think the other interesting thing with the Amazon Prime video in particular is so modern day Apple. Let's, you know, uh, I don't know, post 2013, post 2014, post, post can't innovate my ass. You know, there was a, <laughs> the last blip of beleaguered Apple was a brief period around 2012 to 13, where there was a growing consensus in the business world, not tech world that, uh, you know, we, we told you they couldn't do it without Steve jobs. Here we are two years later, Samsung's eating their lunch. They can't innovate their, their toast. Um, that was about seven years ago. And since then they have done very well and it's hard to identify chinks in their armor, right? They, they, they're pretty solid. One area where they've done, uh, they, they sputtered in a lot of ways is, uh, TV, right? That they're Apple TV in particular, Apple TV is getting its ass kicked by Roku and fire TV and even Chromecast, you know, it's, it, it it is it is not a very large. It's much like the Mac was back in the day, right? It's not non-existent. It's not like it's irrelevant, but it is very small. And their vision for how this should work is the TV app, but they need buy-in from all of these other things. And this is a position. So here's Apple recently, right now, not in a position of strength, but in a position of we need help, right? And so part of the deal wasn't just that they would put. Uh, Prime TV or, or Amazon Prime Video on the platform, which it wasn't even there at all, but that they're going to participate in the the APIs to get it in the TV app so that you can search for it with Siri and next up works with the stuff, you know, that it's part of this larger ecosystem. Um, and so that, you know, part, you know, again, so what do you need to get a good deal from Apple to get your first year at 15% instead of 30 is you need to have a major... <laughs> multi-billion <laughs> you need to spend seven or eight billion dollars a year on original content video yeah because that happens to be the one area where apple doesn't have a lot of traction and needs needs you to buy into their system that is not a position a lot of people have <laughs> yeah and I, you know the other way to look at that again i don't know how, how to write the regulation i think that's very complicated but i think what everyone can feel like another way to look at that is look at what a little competition did Right. That's just a tiny amount of competition from Roku and Fire TV. Like this market isn't flooded with other successful video platforms. Right. There's three of them. Right. Like that's it really. And then Apple's trying to win. So they have to do stuff. They have to try to make it better for consumers. They have to innovate on the product. They have to make a more seamless experience. They have to make their app cross platform so people can get their TV services. That's good for consumers. That's just a little bit of competition. Right. right. And the competitors like, 
I don't know. I got a Roku. It's fine. I prefer my Apple TV, but the Roku is cheap and everywhere. Right. And the, so the competitors aren't, they're not even like direct. They're orthogonal. They have different business models. They pay out different rates. They're in different kinds of fights, but that little bit of action in the market produces results in a way that I think we like, we can all look at like apps on the Mac, right? Where it's just like this market has just dwindled to nothing because all of Apple's activity is uh, focused on iOS. And like, we don't see that sort of competitive race to make a, a bunch of like a bunch of Mac APIs better. So it can attract more developers away from Windows. Like that's all dead because all the activity is competing for developers somewhere else. And yeah. you just see, you can, I think we all feel that the, the competitive landscape for a lot of tech has come down to which company do I like the best? And I'll just buy all my shit from them. Yeah. And that's like no fun. Yeah. And, and the TV market shows that, that, that does, it doesn't work that way. Right. So you, you've bought an iPhone, you've got an iTunes account, you subscribe to TV plus because you, maybe it's just because you got the, bought the iPhone, you got it for free for a year. Um, but you want to keep watching it. You're into it. Now, when you go to buy a new TV, you don't have to buy one brand of TV. And I get it that Apple TV isn't actually on every TV you can buy, but they pretty much, because they needed to compete, went out to all the major ones, including Samsung, mm-hmm. who you know they don't like. I yeah. mean, at a very personal level, they do not like and cut a deal, you know. And so if you buy Samsung, Sony, LG, or the fourth one, who I always forget, um, Vizio. Vizio, you get, and again, that, and that covers a lot of the market that you can just buy a new TV and you get, you know, your Apple TV stuff just works and you're not paying Apple anything for that, right? It's just there. And that's, that is it. That is true competition. And you're not tied into the one brand of TV that works with the, where your TV watching goes. Yeah. You can also see it on something music, right? Every smart speaker, they have to have Spotify to succeed, even right. though they have their own music services. But Apple Music is like showing up on Amazon devices. Like you, you're, there's places, particularly in media, where you're just not locked in in the same way. Right. But almost everywhere else, there, what Apple is going to get in trouble for is using its control of the store to create lock-in. And you just see it kind of over and over and over again. And I think even with the earnings – you see that services line go up. It's not always because Apple services are better than anyone else's. Like it's actually very hard to, to name a service where it's so much better that that's the one you're definitely going to pay for. Yeah. Well, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. And, you know, and how much of this, you know, I, I always bring it up, but I, you know, and it didn't come up at all at the hearing, but it's like, I don't know. They don't break it down, but how much of Apple's app store revenue comes from the candy crush play to win games, you know, and, uh, 30% of that is, in my opinion, for some definition of dirty, it's dirty money, right? It is, you know, and again, in the same way I have brought this up, I don't know if it was on dithering or my show, I forget podcast amnesia, but in the same way that Disney owns cruise ships and they're the only cruise ships you can go on that don't have a casino on board. It's not because Disney doesn't like having making money and casinos definitely make money. It's that Disney has a brand that isn't really copacetic with casino gambling legal or otherwise legal or, you know, no matter how legal it is. Uh, if Apple had a cruise ship, it would not have a casino. I don't think, but uh, the, the money they're making from candy crush, etc and so forth on the app store is no different than slot machines, except slot machines occasionally actually pay you out real money. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the one category where the rates don't fall in the second year on the App Store is games. Yeah, right, because there's no subscription, I don't think. And but also, like, there's no subscription, but also, like, that's the cash cow. Yeah. They don't like to admit it, which is why they don't break it out. But every sort of independent kind of study that we see from the app annies of the world, it, right. it always indicates that it's games. Right. And it's, you know, and so why, not, you know, hmm. so here's here's an issue. And in, in the 3070 split gets a lot of attention, and I think too much attention. I think it's the you have to use our system no matter what the rate is, right? So even if they said, okay, fine, we'll just cut it in half, everything is 15% now. Everything. It's just 15% first year, 15% second year, third year. If it's a $10 game just to buy it, 15%. 15%, 15, 15, 15. Okay, that'd be great. Lots of developers, would, customers wouldn't know, right? Because customers just pay and the, the way it gets split is all between Apple and the developers or content providers. Content providers and developers would surely say, thank you, that is better than 30. Uh, I don't think it really gets to the core problem. The core problem is you must use our system to have an app in the store and the the Hay scenario, like the timing of Hay's debut is so unbelievably serendipitous because it's it, it perfectly points out the the anti-competitive problem with this, which is that Hay wasn't saying 70-30 is not a good deal. We want that better. Hay was, wasn't saying we want to take credit cards in the app on our own and charge people without using your system. Hay was just saying we would just like to sign people up on our own outside the app on our website. We'll take care of all the promotion. We'll, we have plenty of people on our waiting list. We don't need it. We just want to do that. And then just have an app you download for free. And then all you see when you download the app is here's how you log in. Um, that's all we want. And Apple said no. And that to me is the both legal and ethical. Uh, uh, I, I think it's a problem. And I don't think that Tim Cook justified it at all in front of the committee. Yeah. What was their, their, their user experience uh, answer was we don't want apps that don't do anything when you right. turn them on. Right. It's like, well, then let them do something. Right. Like, let them put up a screen that says, go to the, cl click this link to sign up on the web. Like, you have created that exact problem. Well, right? and, and like this, this is your excuse, but it is a, it's a situation of the, that Apple's rules have created. Yeah. The, and the app doesn't do anything. I keep coming back to, and to me, it is so clarifying because it's so clearly wrong is that among the rules of complying with this is that, the one of the rules is you can't explain the rules to your user. So Netflix has an app that you download and doesn't do anything. You download the app and it says, what's your email? What's your password? And that's it. It's like the only other thing you can tap is like a privacy policy. And Netflix has a help thing. I don't even know if it's still there, but it cracks me up to no end that like a year ago I tapped it and it does, still doesn't tell you what you have to do to sign up for Netflix because you're not allowed to, <laughs> but it does have a phone number, which I did call and said, Hey, I would like to, I have an iPhone. I've got the Netflix app. I don't, how do I sign up? And they say, Oh, you need to go to on a computer, go to netflix.com and sign up there. And then you can use the email and password you create on our website to sign into the app. Uh, and I said, thank you. And that was it. Um, so, you know, guess how many small companies have a telephone hotline that they can do to route around that. But to me, anything, whether it's sports, a game, anything, when you say one of the rules is you can't explain the rules, that is, uh, that's dystopian shit, in my opinion. 
Like, so you can't even say, even the hot link, I'm even, I'm even saying that to me, this would be good enough. Like if Netflix and everybody else trying to use that rule could just say, create a new account. And then they say, uh, you cannot create an account in this app. You need to go to our website and create an account there and then come back and sign into the app. And that's it. If they could just say that, if that's all they have to be able to say to me would break the log jam of this and the defense of we want to make things that we're proud of to our family and friends. I don't see how you could, how you can defend this on the user experience in terms of how confusing it is. If you don't know the background of this, that, you know, like you and I are talking about this whole podcast. If you don't know the, background of this, it is extremely confusing to think about, okay, I've never signed up for Netflix. I don't know what it is. I'm older, probably, if I don't already have it. I go on my phone, I download this app, and I open it up, and it already wants my email and password. I don't have an email and password. What are they talking about? Am I supposed to use my iCloud password? What do I do? That, <laughs> seriously, how many people do you think put their I, iCloud password into that field when they download Netflix if they don't already have an account? Probably lots. It doesn't work. I don't know what to do. Why does it think I already have an email and password? And every there's nothing on the screen that would explain this to you. It's a terrible user interface experience. It And to me, it's unjustifiable. Just let them say you have to go to our website and sign up there. You can't sign up in this app. In there, by the way, there happens to be a, a pretty good browser on the phone that would allow you to do that. Right? <laughs> like you can create a pretty easy flow. Right? You don't even, even have if you're to not go to building a device. Safari right. view inside your app. Like you can just do it. Right. This is like the first thing I was saying is, I I think I'm very convinced that to review a phone now or any piece of consumer electronics. You almost have to like know the policy. Yeah, you, you do. Have, you have to yeah. know the business decision. Apple's App Store rules are just the law of the phone, right? Mm-hmm. They're just like your state has a bunch of state laws and there's federal laws. Those are that's the same. Just like Facebook's moderation guidelines for Facebook are right. essentially the laws of a smart small country. Right. And I think the issue that we are having is yep, we let this market grow up. This is a thing the United States is pretty good at doing. Right, the government just like stayed away from it. We're gonna see what happens. Maybe it's gonna all work itself out. And now it's big enough, and there are some players that are big enough where there's no market force trying to make Apple's rules better, where they have to win because Hey is gonna go to another store on the phone to get to iPhone customers, right. or Hey is gonna build a web app. I mean, did you hear it Cook at the hearing? He's like, well, there's two ways to get an app yeah. on the phone. One is the, it's like, dude. Like that shit didn't work for Steve Jobs, and you're right. very charming, but you're not that charming, right? Like, um, well, and the Steve it, Jobs angle back in 2007, I think, was very much a, and and you know, we know from some of the stuff that's come out that Jobs was on the fence about whether they really should, but it was, it just wasn't ready. Even if Jobs had was completely on board in June of 2007 with we should have it, you know, APIs for third party developers, it wasn't going to be ready with that first iPhone when it first launched. And so of course they were going to tell you to make web apps, right? The difference in 2020 is, you know, night and day. It is, <laughs> yeah. it, it's not similar at all to say you can make a web app. And I mean, one way Apple could get through it, like honestly, if they made the web app APIs and platform competitive with the app store, if you could do progressive web apps that downloaded as bundles, like did the whole thing that Google would love them to do and lots of developers that I think that would be a pretty good argument. You can either come in through our store and pay us the money. 
you get a little bit more access to the platform or just build a PWA. It's great. It's going to look, most users will never know the difference. Okay. Like maybe, but right now they're in a place where to no developer is saying, I'm going to build a web app for the iPhone and you're going to love it. Yeah. Right. Like they're not doing that. Right. So you're only locked to, to access iPhone customers who we know are generally more wealthy, who spend more money on the phone, like all those things to access that customer base. You have to go through Apple's, uh, uh, through Apple store. And Tim Cook also is like, well, we compete furiously for developers. They can compete for Android. They compete for, they can go to Windows. They can go to the Xbox, the PS5. It's like, dude, that is just such a, I think, uh, David Hanemeyer Hansen was like, yeah, we're making hay for the PS5. That's what right. we're going to do. Come on. Right. Right. And I think this is like, this is where Apple is there. They were not in as much trouble as the other companies. Very obviously. Right. They're not going to get broken up. Right. Like Facebook right. is staring down the barrel of getting broken up. Apple is going to look there. Some regulation is going to come out of this that says the rules of your store have to meet legal standards. And here are the new standards. And I think that will be actually good for the, sort of the entire ecosystem. Yeah. I think that the other falsehood that, Cook and it was a maybe more of a live omission, but it was in his prepared testimony. It was I mentioned it even in a footnote. It was I didn't realize it. I should have at the time, but I did my talk show with Jaws and Fed. See, I, I call him Fed, Craig Federighi. Um, it, this idea that the that the software industry went from boxed retail software to app stores with no intermediary. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> Incredible. And and it wasn't just that I missed it. I fluffed it in my interview with Jaws because I was too caught up. I mean it. I really mean it. When he said that, I was like, why are we talking about box software? Where do I go with this? And I was like, I have too many other questions. I'm going to go on and didn't really think about the – I was too too concerned with why we bring up box software, not thinking about why aren't we mentioning that you could – you know, the Mac still has a thriving market that is bigger than the Mac App Store – for soft paid software that you download directly from developers and pay some other way. Uh, it, Apple itself used to have a, up in the Apple menu up until there was the Mac app store. You like the third item down. It was like about this Mac, about Mac OS 10 and uh, Mac OS 10 software. And you, yeah. the third item down, you would go to a page that Apple ran at apple.com, which was a great directory of like new and interesting apps. There was no app store. You would just click, go through to their, you know, the, the rogue amoeba site and download the new version of a rogue amoeba app and pay rogue amoeba their own way. And it was not 30%. It was not. Well, there used to be some library for updating Mac apps, right? And I would like, actually choose apps in whatever category that use this particular update library. Yeah. I don't remember what it's called. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was uh, like early 2000s. Maybe there was yeah. some, there was some thing that developers could buy into that yeah, would I don't deliver know. updates over the internet. Um, and it was really good. And one of the th- ways to like split this out, the app store provides a lot of services to developers, right? It, you don't have to think about being a payment processor. You don't have to think about delivering updates. Like you don't have to run your own service. Yet. So you, and this is how Apple justifies the 30%. Wouldn't it be better for developers if there was a market of services that were competing for their dollars to do some of those functions. And that's kind of what you have on the Mac, right? That's in um, another layer of the stack. That's what you have for cloud services, Azure and AWS and Google Cloud, they want your money. They want your business. Uh, Microsoft, every tech show that touches a developer in the audience, Microsoft is there with Azure dollars, spending the money telling you, put your app on Azure. It's great. We love it. iPhone apps on Azure, perfect. AWS is doing the same thing. They're they're competing heavily. Right. 
there's no competition for some of the services the app store provides. And I think you can see that on that side of the market too. Yeah. Well, here, I'll just, you know, uh, disclaimer, they literally are sponsoring this episode of the show. <laughs> of course but, they are. But Linode has their object storage APIs, which use the AWS APIs. And I know, I, I'm not just saying it because they sponsored this episode, that with API compatibility, you can have an app that was using AWS and switch to Linode. And really all you do is just change the, the you know, well, who, where's the, where are the API endpoints? And your code just keeps working. And it also means that you could use both, right? You could split yeah. your spend between one and the other. And your user will never know the difference because they're just buckets of storage and you don't get that. And they, and, they, and they will compete for, right? They'll compete on pricing to get, because there's compatibility and interoperability. Right. One thing that is, uh, we should probably move on to the other companies, yeah. but like, as you think about the services Apple provides developers, one thing I know the committee for all of its faults and all the chaos it's hearing, they're pretty good at understanding tech, right? Like much better than we've seen a congressional committee historically. And they are aware of things like interoperability. They yeah. are aware of – the reason Amazon didn't get dinged for AWS is they know Azure and Google Cloud exist and are fiercely competitive. Yeah. So I think it, it's like this is where Apple is going to get hit is definitely the store. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Amazon. Uh I thought Bezos, also the store, right? I thought Amazon. I thought Bezos was had an interesting demeanor. I think he tried to answer questions as honestly as he could. He seemed very relaxed. Um, I do feel that that issue of like, do I need to explain to you how business works? Like it was, yeah. it, like the most frustrated he got. Um, but I think that Amazon it. it it, it's really disingenuous to me for them to hang their hat on. And I, I don't think it's completely irrelevant that, you know, like Bezos likes to emphasize that, that, you know, they still sell way less than Walmart, even in the U S that, that online isn't its own market. It's um, you know, it's just a component of the broader retail world. It's still though it's, and, and this year in particular, for obvious reasons, it's it, it it's really hard to hang your hat on that. And they're the share of online resources, uh, retail sales that they have is astounding. And the way that they treat the third party retailers is problematic in in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, this is. I think Bezos had the most questions. Um, it was Bezos or Zuck who had the most questions. Um, but almost all the ones to Bezos were about the store, about marketplace, about third-party sellers. In particular, they kept hammering him on whether Amazon uses data about what its sellers are doing, what's performing the store to make its own products. And I, you're right. Like it's great that Walmart sells more stuff. Walmart also sells like diesel fuel, right? Like they're just a bigger company in more physical markets tied to physical locations, right? Um, Amazon isn't that they're they, to some extent with whole foods. Yes, but they're not, they haven't achieved that broad range of scale. The thing that I, in particular about Amazon compared to other kinds of stores, when you walk into a Walmart or a target, you're in control of your experience. You get to decide what section of the store you're in. There's some gamesmanship over which products are placed at which level on the shelves, all that right. stuff. But you're kind of looking around, you get to see all the products it, in some amount of parody with Amazon, you go in and you type battery packs <laughs> and Amazon decides what to show you. Right. And there's a lot of, you can pay them or they can downrank you. There's no transparency there. They decide which supplier gets to that, 
you know, that one click uh, buy button gaming for the buy button is a huge deal. Right. And so all of these places where Amazon gets to exert control over the consumer behavior are places where it defeats its competitors. And the committee was just very focused on that. When you see, I mean, very famously, there's like a, a laptop stand, like a silver curved laptop stand. And that company invented that thing. It was the most popular one. And then like overnight, Amazon cloned it and that company died. Yeah. Um, there's diapers.com. A, a trunk, there's a trunk organizer that I know. I think the Times did a story where where there was a trunk organizer. Again, and I, I know a lot of people are like me, are like, hey, I could use a trunk organizer. My car trunk is a mess. <laughs> but there was a car trunk organizer that shot up the sales charts and then Amazon, you know, all of a sudden started selling an Amazon Basics one and their sales went. Yeah. And I look, every big store makes its own house brands. Like, I get it. But you're not in that demand response environment that the Amazon website and the Amazon Amazon app are. Those comparisons break down, right? The house brands have always been a thing. And retail software in a box was the thing, but the analogies really, really break down. You know, the, the house brands in, in a physical store like Walmart or a physical supermarket are a very different thing than Amazon's house brands. Yeah. I mean, if you go into Walmart and you have to fight through a thicket of weirdo brands you've never heard of to get to the brand name you want, you're going to leave Walmart and go to a store that treats you better. But Amazon is dominant, so it right. doesn't feel that competition. And then on top of it, on sort of the other side of the market, you know, the, the name brands often actually manufacture the house brands. Right. And they get to impose conditions on, you know, if you want Tide in your store, and it's Procter & Gamble makes Tide, but if you want Tide laundry detergent in your store, the big company that owns Tide gets to say, well, we want this placement on the shelf and right. your house brand can't have good packaging. It has to be generic packaging, right? right. And that's a constant fight where there's – at least the illusion of equal leverage on both sides. Nobody gets that from Amazon. And I think, again, where is the committee just going to hit Amazon with a regulation? It's going to be, how do you run this marketplace? What are the rules? How do, how do you have small suppliers, small businesses feel like they're in, a, in an environment where they're treated fairly, even if it's not your policy, if it's the law that requires you to treat them fairly? And there, Amazon just does not have a great defense. And when I say like Lena Khan is sitting up there, mm. I mean, that was her moment. Yeah, like she wrote the paper that set this all off about Amazon in particular doing predatory pricing to kill diapers.com and then buying it because they didn't want a competitor in the market. And if there's one thing that's coming out of this, it will be targeted regulation at Amazon. Yeah. I think that, um, I think Bezos is very genuine. And I, as a longtime Amazon customer, I just brought this, I, I searched my email. I think I've been an Amazon customer since 1997 and, Maybe earlier, I don't know, but uh, because I maybe I might have lost access to the old college email where it might have I might have had books I purchased before. They are customer; they do want happy customers, and yeah, you know, they used to have uh, unbelievable. Like in the early days of buying books, when it was still just like it, what Amazon was thought of as a bookstore, and it's like, yeah, but what if I get a book and uh, I want to send it back? And they were like, oh, yeah, we'll just send it back. We'll, t-, you know, it was like returns were easier than going to a store because you didn't have to leave your house. You just like say, I, you'd click a button, say, I want to send this book back. And then they'd say, well, here, we'll send a guy to pick it up. There you go. Here's your money back. Um, they are very customer focused. And the counterfeit issue is where I learned something about Amazon. Where I've known and I've been on the case that, hey, the Amazon has a real counterfeit problem where they're 
there's not not knockoffs and ripoffs, but actual counterfeits, which is a, a level beyond, right? Just copying the look of a product, but not claiming to be the product. They have real counterfeits. And it's like, why, why don't they tighten this up? This is a real problem. And then the pop socket issue really brought it forward where it's like, it's not just like a low priority. It's like, they were like, yeah, we'll clean this up, but you got to spend $2 million on an ad buy. And it's like, yeah, that is that, that was like a real red flag. And Bezos response to this was basically, Hey, why we, I don't like counterfeits. We're trying to, we have a big team. We're trying to stop it. And you know, it doesn't do good for us because we want people to be happy and counterfeits don't make people happy. So of course we're trying to stop it. And that was his answer. And I think he meant it, but this is where the evidence really helps because there's a lot of proof that this is not a top priority for Amazon. Yeah. I mean, I think Bezos, I think you're right. His demeanor was appropriate. He, he was forgiving of the situation and that he was trying to answer the question that he, there was a, a long um, audio clip they pay, they played of um, a textbook owner, a textbook business owner. And she was like, Amazon destroyed my business. And Bezos was like, I'd love to get a hold of her. I'll fix her problem. <laughs> but it's like, dude, like it's not, if you don't know, if you're saying up here again and again and again, and your answer is, I didn't know that was happening. I'm so sorry. I'll fix it myself. Like either you're not a very good CEO, which I think is a hard road for Bezos to go down, right? Or you're being willfully ignorant of the exact culture and business practices that you have created. And mm. I think here the committee just isn't going to buy that Jeff Bezos doesn't know how Amazon works. Mm-hmm. Who is going to buy that? Yeah. And I so know. his his sort of approach of I'll look into it. That's not how I want it to work. It was good, and it it kept the temperature down. But I think in terms of being a convincing argument. When the committee issues its report, they're going to be like, either Jeff Bezos doesn't know how Amazon works, which is hard to believe, or he's doing it on purpose and he lied to us. Uh, as a side note, before we leave Bezos and Amazon, I thought that uh, – forgive me, I forget her first name, but Jayapal. Uh, Pramila Jayapal. Pramila yeah, she, Jayapal. So she, she represents Seattle. That's mm-hmm. his representative. Right. And she went at him pretty hard in a very informed – constructive way. And again, it might be my personal bias shining, shining through. But to me, this gets to the basic idea that fundamentally the Democrats are there to do what they think is right. And the Republicans are there to do what's good for their, their side of a thing. Yeah. And I thought that that was, it was a shining example. And the fact that she's the representative of Amazon and that she went at him as hard as she would have if she were representing, I don't know, what's the furthest you can get from Amazon? Alaska, Southern Florida. Uh, you would never guess that she was the rep, other than maybe there was like a cursory acknowledgement that she's the representative of Amazon's district. Um, you know, based on her questioning and, and the, it, you know, the way she went at him, you would never guess that she was his, you know, the representative of that district. I thought that, and she was oh. fantastic. And she, she was great the day before talking to Barr. Yeah. Uh, so she's, but you know, the breakout star of this hearing yeah. is representative Jayapal. Yeah. Uh, McKenna Kelly, one of our reporters, our preview piece, she actually interviewed Jayapal and she was very clear. She's like, my role here is an investigator. We have receipts. We're going to show them and we're going to see what they say about them. And I, I, it's no accident that they programmed the Amazon questions for her. Mm-hmm. Like that was the moment that they wanted to create for her. And I think she, she just knocked it out of the park. Yeah. It was just very fair. 
very well informed. I mean, like deeply informed. She came away better informed about Amazon's business practices than Jeff Bezos did. I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> really. I, I mean, yeah, by far. Uh, but uh, uh, so I don't know. What do you think is going to come out? I I I, th- I could see some regulatory action coming out of this uh, on Amazon, and I think specifically with the third party resellers. And it is a weird. This is the thing where there is no analogy to to the real brick and mortar world. There's there's never been anything like Amazon in the brick and mortar world, and I don't even know how there could be. Like you can't go into a Walmart and buy something from another store. You're always yeah. buying from Amazon or from Walmart. Like you, 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 you can buy anything and everything. And most Walmarts are very large stores, and you can buy everything from dog food to lawnmowers to you know uh, TVs. But you go to the same register, and you're paying Walmart. Like the idea that I mean, I guess you do check out through Amazon, but you're buying from another store, and it's you know a lot of these issues are come down to that. And as a user, you just don't know unless you read. The actual literal, it's not an exaggeration, small print that tells you <laughs> who you're buying from, right? Yeah. I, you know, Amazon is very different. You were at the very beginning, you were saying you can slice these companies in different ways. You know, in, in one view, Apple and Amazon have the exact same problem. They run stores, the stores are dominant. Maybe they're using their stores in unfair ways. Mm. Um, in one view, Amazon and Facebook have the same problem. Why did Amazon buy Ring? Not because they thought it was great, because they just wanted to own that chunk of the market. And there's actually really great emails in the evidence where they're debating whether to buy ring. And they're like, well, what if this is just another nest that sucked for them? And I think that's very funny. Um, <laughs> Cause like, that's what they should be asking themselves. Um, but I, I think where it really breaks down is Amazon does sell physical goods. And so all of the ways that we think about platform moderation about um, section 230, right? All this stuff that comes up with other platforms. Those are all related to speech and advertising and all this other stuff. Amazon's platform is about like physical products to a large extent. And so you've, you've got to tailor a regulation that hits both kinds of marketplaces with that doesn't trip over itself because eventually someone's got to put a, an item in a box and ship it out of a warehouse. And so I think this is where, some of the algorithmic transparency stuff comes in. This is where Amazon can't favor its own products. Another example Jayapal brought up uh, was when COVID hit, Ring doorbells were deemed as essential products that Amazon would ship on time. Right. But Arlo, Arlo doorbells and Eufy doorbells were not. And Jeff Bezos was like, well, that was probably a mistake. <laughs> it's like, was it? Yeah, but it was a mistake that their subsidiary was the one. You know, like it's like Facebook yeah. famously. Every single time Facebook does a data dump where it's a, a number – and you can set your goddamn calendar by it. 30 days from now, they're going to issue a correction and the number is going to come out is going to be worse than what it yeah. was. 30. <laughs> so their mistakes inevitably always are on the side of undercounting a problem. Always. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Oh, we made a mistake. And the one, the one who got approved for essential goods was our wholly owned subsidiary. <laughs> that yeah, we, obviously. That we Oops. may or may not have should have been allowed to abide in the first place. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I, I just think like when you see the regulation, the regulation that's going to hit is very much, how do we, how do, what are the rules for marketplaces, right. online marketplaces? What are the rules that relate to favoring your own products? What are the rules that relate to how you treat, um, who has leverage? How do you, how do we get more leverage for the pop sockets of the world through the law? So right. that if you wrong them, they can sue you. It's going to look like that. 
Yeah. All right, let me take another break here and thank another first-time sponsor. Very excited to have this company on the show, Stitch Fix. Wouldn't it be great if every clothing store you shopped at only had your size and the sort of styles of clothes that you like at prices you want? Well, there is a company that is focused on making that happen, and that's Stitch Fix. In the world of online clothes shopping, there are no consistent sizes. Why should you have to try to guess if you're a medium or a large or if it's really the same medium as you got from another company? Once you know your size at Stitch Fix, you're good to go. It's a personal styling company, and they make getting the clothes you love effortless. Really, really easy. If you don't like shopping for clothes, this is the way to go. To get started, you go to stitchfix.com com slash talk show to set up your profile. They'll deliver you great looks personalized just for you in your colors, your styles, your budget. What you do is you pay a $20 styling fee for each fix they ship you. But it that 20 bucks is credited toward anything you keep. You schedule it at any time when you're ready. No subscription required. They just send you a bundle of clothes. You keep the stuff you like. You send the rest back. The $20 styling fee goes towards what you keep. And shipping, returns, and exchanges are easy and free. Stitch Fix does the hard work for you. Sizing, colors, that sort of thing, picking great clothes that go together. Uh, and they have stuff for men, women, and kids. Really, it's great stuff. Go to stitchfix.com slash talk show. And by using that URL, you get 25% off uh, if you keep everything in your first fix. That's stitchfix.com slash talk show for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. Uh, my thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Let's go on to Google and then save oh, Facebook man. for last. Google is the hardest one. Uh, oh, do you want to save them or do you want to? Uh, no, I'm just, it's, it's, it's where to start. Right. Uh, I didn't think, Google- I didn't think Sundar Pichai did very well, to be honest. I, I, I think he seemed a bit lost and, and I don't think he was prepared for some of the questions that he should have been prepared for. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've talked to Sundar a bunch. I, I agree with that in general. I also think that is just his personality. Mm-hmm. He is a professor. Yes. Right? And so if you ask him a yes, no question, you never, ever get a yes, no answer, right? You, mm-hmm. you get a, well, I mean, step back. Computers work by shuffling electrons into states known <laughs> as ones. Like that's where his brain goes. Right. right. <laughs> um, this is not the format for his personality right. where I did think it played to his benefit was all of the insane bias questions. Mm-hmm. Like they couldn't get the viral moment out of him. Cause he just, mm-hmm. it's not him. <laughs> he just can't, you can't bait him into it, but I don't think that his sort of professorial approach to things let him cleanly answer the questions. I totally agree with you there. So I think uh, one that I think that one that could have been a layup for him was uh, Stube's question about his campaign emails getting sent to spam, and his, he was alleging it that it was a form of conservative bias. That he ran for the state house in Florida five six years ago, and he didn't seem to have a problem with his fundraising emails going to spam for Gmail users. And now he's in Congress, and they are. And his dad tried to sign up for his own fundraising emails, and even his went to spam. Why is that? Why are you biased against conservatives? And I he seemed so surprised by this question and the premise of it that he I, I yet I feel like he could have easily answered and said, you know. 
here's how spam filtering works. And it's, you know, it's, it's machine learning that's based on what actual people deem as unwanted emails. And, uh, I can assure you that if fundraising emails are being flagged as spam more than they used to, it's not about whether they're from Republicans or Democrats. It's simply because a large number of users are identifying them as unwanted emails and regardless of who they're coming from, something like that. You're adorable, John. Like, no. I mean, he runs YouTube. This man <laughs> knows how platform moderation controversies go. I know. You just gave a good faith answer to a I bad know. faith question. <laughs> His job was to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'll yeah. look into it. <laughs> like, no. He, like, the person who is in charge of YouTube is not confused about the nature of platform moderation questions, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, that uh, you saw that with Zuck, too, over and over again. He's like, I don't know. Algorithms, how do they work? Right. Like that's, that, that is like where they're at. They can't be like, sorry, dude, like the vast majority of people flag your messages at spam. So the machine decided to flag it for everyone because that's the answer. Sorry. Right. Like no one wants to give you money. He can't do that's a, that's a whole fight. He doesn't want to be in. Uh, And it's a fight that he can't win because it's not a good faith fight where I think when I say Google is the most complicated one. Yep. They do run YouTube. That's a big deal. Yep, that search results page is just the focus of every company that has ever felt wronged by the internet is mad at Google, right? Because the search results page doesn't do what they want it to do. Uh, They run Android. They've got antitrust issues all over the world with Android. And on top of it, they own the entire advertising economy of the open web. So, like, (laughs) where did it begin? Right. Right. And there's already, there's the DOJ investigation. There's state AGs investigating. We're expecting some sort of case to be brought from one of them soon. So you saw these questions are all over the place because you could just spend your entire time. All five hours could have been spent on the top of the search results page. Mm -hmm. You, You could just put it all there. You could spend all five hours on Android. You could spend all five hours on YouTube. They try to do them all, and I think that's why Sundar was just—he was just buffeted by all of the controversy that surrounds Google. Yeah, it's—it is surprising how much of human-computer interaction, especially for things where you don't already have a thing, right? Like, I want to check my email. I know how to get to my email app. It's right there, right? I want to send a text to my wife. I know how to do that. But for anything that I don't already have an app, and maybe it's not an app, but let's just say apps. What do you do? You go to a browser field and type natural language query. What search engine is answering that? 95% is <laughs> yes. Google, maybe more. I, I mean, no matter what you use, no matter you're using the iPhone or an Android phone or a, a computer or a tablet, uh, it's, you know, that search field. That is human computer interaction to a large degree, right? And, and yeah, it's it, that the top of the search results could be a whole five hour hearing. You know, it's, it's always struck me that um, Apple never built a search engine. Mm. I mean, in some ways you can say the series of search engine. Sure. But they didn't realize that they're like, that was such a key part of computing. You know, like what the line is we want to own and control every part of the stack or whatever Tim Cook right. says. Um, well, search is like the biggest one when you start to use a computer. And the, the whole industry is basically seeded it to Google. Yes, there's DuckDuckGo. Yes, Bing limps on. But none of the big companies are like, we should fix this problem. 
I we should throw money at it till we win. I've never really understood it. So that's it. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I have this somewhere in my notes and missed it. So on the intersection of Apple and Google in this quadrant, search is fascinating, right? I get this. I, on a almost daily basis, I get asked on either on Twitter or often on email, why doesn't Apple buy DuckDuckGo? They get, they would get nothing from that. And I was very curious whether this would come up in the hearing if they would ask either of the two CEOs, how much does Google pay Apple for default placement in Safari um, as the search engine? And that's a complicated question, but it is a lot of money. I mean, that, that, that question, how much do you pay, isn't complicated. Why is Google the, the default search engine and why do they pay for it is complicated. But it's a lot of money and nobody other than a very small handful of people at both companies seemingly knows the answer and there's just a lot of speculation, but it doesn't get revealed in either company's filings. It is apparently, I think Goldman Sachs pegs it at like $20 billion a year. Uh, um, and I think Goldman has probably, I, I would go with that number as the best we know, you know, $20 billion a year. And that gets filed under services. So a big chunk of Apple's services revenue isn't even related to the App Store. It isn't related to any service that Apple provides or develops. It is Google paying Apple so that on the iPhone, when you type in the search field, it goes to Google by default. Now, it is also true that Google is the best search engine. I love DuckDuckGo and use it as my default, but I will admit that uh, I, when I use DuckDuckGo, I sometimes get results that make me go to Google to do the same search. And if I use Google by default, there's very seldom I would have to I'd go to DuckDuckGo. Yeah. I, the, um, it is the best. The way, that, but the way that, that Google and Apple deal is structured is they've structured in a way that when you, if you ask them directly, how much does Google pay to be the default? The answer is nothing hmm. because that is technically the answer. But they are, but like the way the deal operates is that they pay, they pay the money and then there's a default. But like the technical structure of the deal is such that both companies get to say we don't nothing, which I think is always very interesting, right? Mm. Like you're, you're only structuring a deal that way to get to that answer. If you think that answer is bad for some reason. And that's just part of the, part of the gamesmanship here. Right. I, one thing uh, like you, you, you're obviously using Google just right. Yeah. Over time, it's just, uh, not even controversial to say Google search results have gotten worse. They've gotten worse without question, but, but not worse in terms of not being able to find the information. The page has gotten loaded with shit yep. that puts you to Google things. And that is like the surest sign of monopoly to me, right? Like they're, they're just making it worse because they can, because that makes more money because you're not going to go anywhere else. And that's how, how do you solve that? How does Congress solve that? I have no idea. But it's like the most obvious thing. Like you can call anyone at Genius or anyone at Yelp or any of these other companies that ran what are called vertical search engines where you just – you're searching for flights. So Kayak will just build a search engine just for flights. And they'll be like, yeah, Google scrapes our shit. They dump it in the main page and they kill our business. And like over and over and over again, that's the pattern. And it, what has resulted in is a clogged search results page that mostly points to other Google properties. And that – like that's shouldn't the market fix that of all of the things here shouldn't cleaner, better search be the easiest win. Like Sundar actually said it, it was on my little like drinking game bingo. Like competition is just a click away. That's right. always Google's argument. And yet for some reason it's not, and yeah. I, I've never really understood why. 
Yeah, and it really is easy to switch your default search engine. Uh, I mean, as easy as I mean, defaults certainly matter, and most people probably don't even think about it. But um, you know, it, it actually isn't that hard. It could be even easier, um, and people just don't do it. You know. It yeah, is. but this is like in the EU, they made Windows put the browser ballot and everybody picked IE right. anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and Android in uh, the EU has all kinds of balloting screens to pick different services because they've unbundled Android in various ways. Right. Everyone's picking Chrome. So there's if some you, If you started your iPhone up, if you started your iPhone up and one of the onboarding questions was, what do you want your search engine to be? Yahoo, Google, DuckDuckGo, or Bing, and randomized, you know, just use a uh, agreed upon random number generator to, to randomize which order those four options appear in. Uh, I don't think anything would change. I don't even know that people would even realize that, you know, they, they don't even know what DuckDuckGo is. I don't even think most people know what Bing is. And it's from a, you know, second largest company in the world. Yeah, I mean, all the evidence suggests that the, like those, that, those balloting systems they have in the EU. Don't do a lot. At the same time, it doesn't mean Google isn't fighting for those default spots. So in the docs, right. the, you know, there's this so when Sundar ran the Chrome team, there's this email exchange where they're negotiating in like 2012 or 2011 or something um, how to get Chrome to be the default on Dell and Lenovo and Toshiba laptops. Mm. And the first question is, can we even do it? And they're like, yes, but they we can't do it in such a way that they IE isn't there at all because there are some sites particularly for these enterprise customers that only work in IE, which is like, that's a whole story of technology <laughs> in 2012. Right. right. Windows manufacturers, like we have to have IE because of these weird corporate internet apps. Okay. Then they're like, well, it'll be easy to get Dell to agree. All Dell cares about is money. Right. <laughs> it's just like this <laughs> hard dunk on Dell. Like we'll just pay Dell until it happens. <laughs> and then like for this other one, I don't remember which one it is, but for this other one, let's do it this way. We'll, we'll say that we'll let them put IE on it. But Chrome will be the default, but they have to put the the Chrome toolbar in IE to mm. get people to switch out. And that's that is a extraordinarily aggressive move, right? To say we will we, the Chrome team, will pay money to determine what Lenovo's product looks like. Right. What Dell's product looks like. And we have the money to do it. And then later in a different sort of thread, they're talking about how to improve the Google search. And they're like, we need to make it so that the size of our user base creates an unfair advantage in terms of data collection. So that the more users we have, the better various things get and no one can compete with us because they don't have our scale. And they actually use the words unfair advantage, which I get in the business context, like you want to say that, right? But that is the exact thing that regulators around the world and competitors have said about Google the entire time. You cannot actually build a competitor Google search because you do not have the data set. And right. Google's data set is a moat that no one can cross. And that's why none of the other big companies want to come across it. The only company that could, because they get the volume of search queries by default in the browser is Apple. And it just, why won't Apple do it? I've never understood it. Well, and that's, I don't know what the answer is. They could because they have the opportunity, but you know, the cynical answer would be that if they did it, they don't think they would make $20 billion a year from it. And I mean, I, I think, and I do think that is a huge part of the answer, right? That, that let's say they bought DuckDuckGo and use DuckDuckGo as the, you know, and app, you know, these big companies buying smaller companies is a big part of it to, to, to squash competition is a problem. I think everybody would agree that if Apple bought DuckDuckGo 
and said, and we're going to call it Apple Search, and it's going to be the default on all of our Safari browsers, that this would be pro-competition, right? I don't see how anybody could say that's an anti-competitive acquisition. This is pro-competition because they'd be they'd be swinging their competitive cannons against the Google, which has a monopoly. Yep. Um, I, I I think the cynical answer is Apple could say we can buy DuckDuckGo for a pittance by Apple standards. We could do a great job. We could scale it. Uh, the results are good. The results in some ways would be better because they wouldn't have ads for Google stuff. They'd be honest ads. We can't, we don't know any way to, to use that acquisition to make $20 billion a year or even close to it. Right. That's that to me. And I, that was one of my like bingo. Will somebody ask about that particular issue? Because there's an acquisition, and it doesn't have to be DuckDuckGo. I mean, it could just be build their own, whatever. It, to me, it's like whatever they do, I don't see how they see any path to get $20 billion a year from it or even close. And that $20 billion a year isn't just $20 billion, It's $20 billion that gets filed under services, which is the division of Apple that Apple's been promoting <laughs> to Wall Street as our growth, right? Yep. You know? like, so like there, There's one way to make money in search. The Apple already makes money in search in a specific way, and everybody hates it, which is you put ads at the top of the results. Right. Right. And people hate it in the app store. They absolutely hate it. Yeah. You search for Overcast and you get, you know, Joe's podcast app or whatever, you know. But like, is Apple going to buy DuckDuckGo and try to monetize their way to 20 billion by building an ads business? There is no other way to monetize search. That right. is it. That's the way. Are they going to do it? They're definitely not going to do it. Right. So now you're buying this thing to compete with Google. You're taking 20 billion off the books and you have like a moral DNA level aversion to the way that you make money doing this business. Right. Okay. All that makes sense. And at the same time, just do it. Right. <laughs> like, and what else could they do? They could, they could put, you know, like, you know, maybe you're searching for lawnmowers, but what they'll do is come October, they'll, they'll just put a thing at the top of the results that says, Hey, buy a new iPhone 12, right? Just promote Apple's own stuff if yeah, you're buying. Yeah, they're not but they don't need to do that. They already sell all the iPhone 12s they can make. <laughs> right? They don't need it. Yeah, I mean I I don't think anybody wants to this is actually the other part of Google, right? So there's all the consumer facing Google stuff. There is when you search for a video on Google, even if it the original version of the video is on Vimeo, Google will show you the YouTube rip. <laughs> so right? Yeah. Like they're just right. going to do it, right? right. Like I face that people I face that Personally, I can personally vouch that that happened because in years past, I would put my the talk show live on Vimeo, not YouTube, because I'm not a YouTuber and I just thought Vimeo had a better interface. And I don't care because I'm not a YouTuber. I don't care. And you know what people got when they'd search for my talk show live videos? They got uh, – I'm going to say illegal. I don't really care. I just like that people watch it. I wasn't making money on the Vimeo <laughs> one anyway, but people would rip the Vimeo one and then post it to YouTube. And they weren't, they weren't even doing it for the ads. They were just like, I, I wish that this, I want to, somebody wants to watch my show on YouTube. They'd rip it, post it to YouTube and watch it there. And then that's what people would get when they search for it on Google. So that's why I post them to YouTube now. Yeah, and Google, it, they've got the same algorithms. How do they work? Argument, which literally is, happened. You'd search for talk show, you know, John Gruber talk show WWDC 2016, and it the, the canonical version is one place. My account on Vimeo, and you'd get the YouTube version, which is from right. Like, and, the, and their argument is over billions and billions of clicks, we have found people prefer clicking on YouTube. Why? Right. Because we keep putting YouTube at the top. Right. Like this argument's like fundamentally circular. There's actually another. Um, in these docs, again, 
there's the hearing, but like really what we got out of this was all these internal documents. There's a long email chain where Google executives are discussing whether to buy YouTube and for mm. how much. And they actually started by discussing whether they should buy pure digital, which made flip video cameras. <laughs> so they went to pure digital and said, Hey, do you want to make a Google branded YouTube branded flip video camera? We'll do an integration and like direct upload, like whatever. And flip video or pure digital was like, screw it. We'll just sell you the whole company. <laughs> this is great for that. Like we're out. We, we see the phone coming, like we're out. Um, and so they're discussing it and there's this line where they're like, well, we should just buy YouTube. Like if we're trying to build this community video product, why don't we just buy YouTube? It's right there. And they're like, well, if we buy YouTube, we are going to have to start deleting the copyrighted content on YouTube and it will destroy the product because that's what all it is. Right. And it's like, they knew then that what YouTube was in the early going was a place to pirate video. And this was always a problem. That's how YouTube grew, grew. They just paid the fines and paid the fines until they just paid Viacom and now it's the default. Is that, should we run businesses that way? Like if you're a policymaker and you're looking at this pattern of evidence where they know Google is going to break the law and they think buying this company won't work out because they won't be able to keep breaking the law, but then they kind of just did it anyway. Right. Because it built the business. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we do something like, Committee, what do you think, right? And that's just like one tiny piece of Google. Like we've only talked about the search results page this entire time. We have not talked about their dominance of advertising, which is actually the problem. And that to me is like Google. Google's going to get it in some way, but it's going to be a shotgun blast of regulation. Hmm. Yeah, and I do think too that they are – you know, one difference between Apple and the other companies is what I just mentioned about like possibly buying DuckDuckGo. Apple does make acquisitions, but they tend to buy features, not products. Um, you know, they made a whole bunch of acquisitions to build Apple Maps, but nobody ever thinks, hey, whatever happened to whatever companies they bought, right? Like, oh, man, I really miss, you know, whatever weird company they had that had some kind of mapping info. I feel like we're all about to see that with Dark Sky. We're all about to – Dark Sky I- is maybe the closest, right? Dark Sky is a good counterexample where people are mi- are going to miss the actual product and the fact that it was also a popular a- Android app that is going to – or I guess it still is working, but it's sunsetted. Yeah. Um, you can make a strong case that beats is a shell of itself, <laughs> right? Like th- yeah. there are some of these. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And beats and, you know, and, and it was the largest so that, you know, there's exceptions. Yeah. Beats is a good one. And it was certainly high profile too. It wasn't like beats acquisition was under the radar. Um, but for the most part, Apple doesn't do that. Whereas Google buying YouTube is just buying a new thing. Right. It is, yeah. you know, and, and Facebook buying Instagram and Facebook buying WhatsApp, uh, are very similar. You know, Apple doesn't really do that. And even when Amazon does it, it's like with Ring, it's at a smaller scale than Instagram and WhatsApp, right? Like nobody thinks Ring was going to be a, a rival company in size to Amazon. Whereas Instagram as an in- independent entity might have been a legit straight up rival to Facebook, you know? Yeah. I mean, so like the ring example is another one where it cuts both ways, right? Um, ring, like uh, was a, Bezos saying, I bought market position. Totally fair. What else are you going to spend your money on? Right? Like it's video doorbells. Like right. who, who gives a shit, right? Of course you're going to buy the best one. There's only three of them. Right. Ring started as a, a Kickstarter that didn't even make it through Shark Tank. 
right? Like <laughs> no one thought this was a good company. And they like struggled their way into the market leader of video doorbells. Okay. But is your real play Alexa is going to control every device in your house and we're going to have a platform right. that keeps interoperability from smart home stuff. Like, do you think Jeff Bezos doesn't see that opportunity? Is that because that's a hard case to make too. And I think that's that act that we're going to talk about Facebook now. I'm sure yeah. that idea that what you're buying is lock in, what you're buying is insulation from competition, that what you're buying is a hedge against anybody else getting ahead is I think the most powerful idea that has emerged from this committee. Yeah. Well, I thought the closing, you know, Cicciolini, you know, opened it. I think he did a great job running the actual meeting. I think he's a very good chairperson for this committee. Uh, his closing remarks though was sort of like a, wait, what? He was like, you know, thank you for everybody for being here. I think everybody here needs all four companies need some regulation and some of you need to be broken up. Bangs the gavel. And it's like, yep. what? <laughs> and, it's like, and I think that brings us to Facebook because. <laughs> I, I, you know, you could argue. So, how would you break them up? I, breaking up Apple seems impossible. I can't imagine what you would even say broken up. I mean, you can regulate the App Store and change, you know, enforce new rules on it. But yeah, I, I don't think, and I know some people will say, well, they should spin the App Store off into another company. And it's like, that just doesn't really make sense. There's things you could break off from Amazon, but it doesn't make as much sense. YouTube, you could say, should be spun off from Google, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but Facebook, oh man, Facebook, it's like, you know, why not spin off Instagram? You know? So, one of the arguments, um, I, and this isn't my world, so I'll probably get the, uh, you know, I'm very focused on consumer tech. Like, that's right. what the verge is. That's what we do. On the business side, a lot of the arguments are is, are we, have we locked up too much growth inside of these companies, right? Is there, is the market stagnant? And so like if you broke up Facebook and Instagram and they started competing, would they both just get bigger, right? Would investors just get more money from investing in both? And like, I think that is a totally fair question that answers the market side of it as much as the policy side of it, Hmm. because the policy side of it is inherently backward looking in a way that I think is a little uncomfortable, right? So we have these emails, Casey and I wrote the whole story on it on the verge, like Mark Zuckerberg emails the CFO and he's like, I'm going to buy Instagram. What do you think? And the CFO was like, why? Here are some reasons. One, two, three, four. Um, one, neutralize competition. Two, um, get ahead of the curve. Three, improve Facebook. Four, other. And Zuckerberg writes back. It's a combination of one and three. Neutralize competition and improve Facebook. <laughs> and then like 45 minutes later, he like emails this clarification. He's like, just to be clear, I didn't mean that we were going to stop them from competing. And when um, the lawyers presented all this evidence to the committee, they labeled that email whoops in the slide deck because they firmly believe that Zuck, like the CFO ran over to Zuckerberg and was like, clean this up because when this deal is scrutinized, they will see this and stop it. Right. Which is hilarious. Like just <laughs> hilarious clown car. These, you know, these powerful executives. Um, but if you really believe that Zuckerberg has the data from Facebook and he's saying things like, there's all, it's a winner take all market for every kind of social dynamic. So, uh, to bring this into the present, TikTok is just a UI paradigm. It's a great video editor if you've right. ever used it. Like it's a fun and exciting video editor, but nothing is stopping Facebook or Google or whoever from building a fun and exciting video. That's not the power of the platform. The power is the upswipes. The power is the algorithm. It's a particular kind of social dynamic. Zuckerberg's point is 
there's only one winner for every social dynamic. So every time I see a new one pop off, I'm going to buy the winner. That is right. ice cold from Zuck. Right. That's what he did. That's why he bought Instagram. Right. Maybe he didn't think it would be as big as it got. And, you know, to his credit, Facebook put a lot of money into it and all this stuff and they wanted to sell. But that deal was looked at by the FTC and the FTC declined. They left it open. They said, we'll, we'll look at it again in the future if we need to. But this company is a dozen people. You're buying it for a billion dollars. Like most people think you're dumb. Right. Like that was the response. And so for now to go back and say, we got that wrong, we need to break you up, I think will be difficult. Um, I think Sensenbrenner was like, you know, display of pure partisanship. He was like, well, it's the Obama FTC who said this was good. You love Obama, right? Like, yeah. right, sure. So that's a tough one, but I guarantee you the DOJ, the FTC are going to move on Instagram, if not both Instagram and WhatsApp soon. Yeah, and the, both of them. And, you know, it. it, it is, again, putting the, your ethical and legal judgment aside, strategically, it is a brilliant insight by Zuck early that – we need to identify these things that there's always going to be one in these new dynamics. We don't have to invent the dynamics. You probably can't predict what they will be, right? Because Instagram's particular dynamic was almost impossible to predict in advance. Who in the world really thought that phones would become the cameras that they are, right? Like it just, you know, again, and it, it just in a handful of years, the original iPhone in 2007 had the shittiest camera you could imagine. <laughs> it didn't even shoot video. It, it, you know, and, and Instagram just a handful of years later was a thing. And that this insight of you're going to shoot it right there on your camera with your camera and f- edit it in this app and you know, it, the cameras were still so crappy at the time, which is why the early years of Instagram were all about the filters that were so over the top in hindsight. But they covered up for the fact that the raw unfiltered image was sort of so flat, you know, and yeah. technically poor. It, you know, and then as the cameras on the phones got better, they they de-emphasized the filtering as a gimmick because it wasn't needed. And But the idea of your that's your camera and the best way to edit it is on your camera and the best thing to do with it is share it with the whole world and we'll keep a tight focus on the interface and it was a terrific insight nobody would have predicted it yeah um our the former creative director of the verge james barham uh who is now one of the creators of our whole company he's moved up in the world um uh, he, before he was our creative director, he was a professional photographer for years and years and years. And he wrote this piece for us, um, several years ago, just about the iPhone camera in, in particular Instagram. And he was like, the insight here is that the place you create the image is the place that you view and share it. Yep. And that connection between what you are seeing other people do and what you have been empowered to do in the same interface yep. is the revolution. Yeah, right. and, that's never happened to anyone before. No, and at the same scale, right? Like the the when I'm taking a picture in Instagram on my phone, it looks like after I post it, it looks like the pictures from you, Neilai, and my wife, and whoever else I'm looking. You know, because it's on the phone, it's the same size, and it's the same screen. It's it is a, you know so obvious in hindsight and so completely non obvious in advance. And I think what Casey and I were talking about this. Um, it's like very easy to clown on Zuck, right? Like, there's the video of him smoking meats in the backyard, and there's yeah. a picture of him with the sunscreen, and 
you know, just the general nature of the company, just acting clumsy, even though it's often malicious in, in different ways. Zuck is a genius. Yeah. Right. Like he's like, obviously one of the smartest people in every room that he's in. Yep. If not the smartest. And he saw it and he was able to, when we were writing the story, one of the things that struck me is I don't have to explain what Zuck is saying. Right. Like often when we get emails or documents or legal stuff, like I, as a writer have to unpack what is happening. Right. This is what they mean. This is what this coded business or legal or whatever jargon means with Zuck. It was just, he said, he just knew it. He could express it as clearly as anything. And I could let his words drive the story through. That is a, for me, you're a writer. I know you probably feel this way, but that is a mark of high intelligence. Yes. Right. When you're writing in emails to your CFO that you don't think anyone else is ever going to read are that clear and precise that is a mark of a very smart person. And I think that just tracks, it doesn't track with his current persona where everything's no. just fucking everything up, but yeah. he's like obviously incredibly smart. Uh, it, well, and go back in time and tie it in with Apple. It's, it, you know, Steve Jobs had that, right? You read Steve Jobs' emails and they're very clear. When you know that Steve Jobs wrote a thing like the thoughts on music and the thoughts on Flash, and you know he wrote them, or or the 1.0 version of the App Store guidelines, when, and there still are a few Jobsisms in the guidelines as they stand now, you know, like when they're talking about uh, scams, it's like, we don't have to define what they are. We know them when we see them. It's like, yeah, yeah. Steve Jobs wrote that. Um <laughs> I always thought it was very interesting because I, in the, you know, 2008, nine era, you know, when Steve Jobs was still there, you know, alive, uh, Facebook wasn't anywhere near as big, you know, and I don't think it was clear that it was going to be big. And I think, you know, is it the next MySpace was a legit question, even if you were informed. Um, is it a flash in the pan? The fact that Jobs took a personal, you know, what would you call it? Not a stewardship, but a, a sort of, Took, took Zuck under his wing um, and found him interesting. I mean, one thing we know for a fact about Steve Jobs is he did not suffer fools, right? Yeah. Uh, and there is a similarity there. Like, you know, the fact that, you know, I, and I don't think Zuck or Steve Jobs had any particular interest in Facebook as a product. I just think he found Zuck personally interesting and smart, right? And, and who was the other? Him. Who was the other person who did the same thing? Bill Gates. Like, yep. if you can roll up in the world and you, and yeah. like those two dudes are like, oh, this is the next generation of talent. Like, you're yeah. probably not faking it, right? Right, right. And, and that's I, why and that's I, that's why Jobs and Gates got along so well, even though they had such different opinions and were competitors. They they found each other. You know, like, oh, this is a mind that I can I I, I deem appear to mine. Yeah. So I mean, look, I again the in terms of this hearing. Zuck is really good at this. He handled the crazy moderation questions better than anyone because he's, yes, he's he's just done rounds and rounds of them with Congress. Now he's just ready for it. Yeah. So he handled that really well. And he had the confidence that no one's trying, maybe they will regulate more acquisitions more closely. Right. That is probably going to happen. But in terms of attacks on his business, they have to go back in time and justify breaking them up now when they didn't prevent it then. And that will be, it's not impossible. And certainly there's a lot of political will to do it, but it's not, it's not the same as we wrote a law that changes how Amazon works, which is definitely the other thing that's going to happen. Yeah. Who do you think is the most likely to be broken up? You think it's Facebook or Google? I, I think the the case that was made to break up at least Instagram from Facebook 
it was the point of the committee's release of the documents it released. And I think very clearly when we were reporting out the story, um, those documents were described to us as we think this is as close to a smoking gun as we can get. Yeah. And, and, and it, what is the argument that any harm would come to consumers in any way from this, you know, and I, I really fail to see it, you know, what, that your ads and in Instagram won't be informed <laughs> by the stuff you type into Facebook anymore. I mean, that is, that, that, that is a stretch to say that that's harm to consumers, right? If you're an avid user of Facebook and an avid user of Instagram and they spun Instagram off into an independent company, I really think it's highly unlikely that you'd know. Oh yeah. I mean, most people that we do a survey every year and one of the questions is like, who do you love? Who do you hate? And then do you know that Facebook owns Instagram? And it's always like sub 50% of people even now, <laughs> right? like who, who cares? Right. Right. I, I don't think that this, the question there isn't harm to consumer that will block it. Right. Right. It's, is this like the government can't just run around taking things from you. Right. Right. Uh, so <laughs> they have to have a compelling reason. <laughs> this has to be uh, explained to, to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like they, they need to make an argument that Facebook will challenge that will go all right. the way up. And so, you know, you mentioned Cicilline's, um, uh, closing remarks. And so he, yeah, he, he said the three things that everybody caught, right? All of you are too powerful. All of you need to be regulated and some of you need to be broken up. And then he ended with a quote from Louis Brandeis, uh, mm. Justice Brandeis. And the, that was a signal flare. That was fireworks in the sky with Lena Khan sitting behind him because that means he's going to change the standard of review in antitrust law. So what we have now is called the consumer welfare standard. It's uh, it's from the, like the seventies and eighties. There's just an insane backstory with this guy named Robert Bork. I won't, we did it on the verge cast. It took too long and it was boring. If you want to go listen to it, listen to my show. It's on there. But uh, basically in the seventies and eighties, this very influential judge, Robert Bork <laughs> changed the standard of the law to what's called consumer welfare standard. And he said, mergers should be allowed unless we can prove that consumer prices will go up. <laughs> and that opened the floodgates to every right. merger. That's like, why does eight, why did AT&T right. reconstitute itself? Right. Like the T 1000, like, yeah. <laughs> cause we changed the antitrust standard. Right. That's what happened. Right. We can't prove that Ameritech and SBC are going to not rate. You can't prove it. Right. So they got, they merged. Um, if you look at the, the time Warner AT&T merger, when it went up to the courts, if you look at that decision, there's like, 40 pages of argument from experts over whether cable prices will rise by 30 cents. And yeah. there's zero discussion of whether AT&T will zero rate HBO on the phone. Right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, our standards are just like upside down. We're not even arguing the right thing. Right. So this, this reference to Brandeis is very much when we were trust busting, mm. when we were breaking up standard oil and, uh, and the railroads and all this stuff the standard was different. It was a competitive standard yeah. and Brandeis was the champion of that standard. So it was just like, if you've been paying attention, you know, and it's very dry and very legal, but Tim Wu wrote a book called the curse of bigness. Uh, Tim Wu wrote a book called the curse of bigness, which is basically a book where he says, Robert Bork is a shithead and Brandeis <laughs> had it right. It's fun read. Tim was a great writer. Um, I mean, that's just, if you, that's just a dog whistle to say, I'm changing the consumer welfare standard. Like, we got to get out of this. One yeah. thing that is very interesting, and I actually I didn't know this. I mean, this is not deeply in the weeds, and you can just you can just edit this out if you think it's boring. Um, but at the at the same time that 
the sort of consumer welfare standard was in its ascendancy in America, the EU was forming. And one of the reasons the EU formed was to gain competitive advantage with the United States, right? Like we, we need a bigger market to compete with the United States. So we're going to form this single European market. And they just lifted our competition policy because they thought it was good. They're like, that worked for them. We'll just lift it. So you had this sort of natural worldwide AB experiment mm. of United States competition policy, the new one, and mm. United States competition policy, the old one in Europe. And you just look at it. They're much more active in antitrust. Their prices for things like cell phones and laptops, like it's wild how much cheaper internet services in the EU yeah. because they have a focused competition policy. Um, so, you know, do I buy it that it's a one-to-one A-B test? Is that a true A-B test? You have to be a very specific kind of economist or academic to make the case. I'm not either one of those things. But it's just one of those, like, actually our antitrust law changed a lot in the past 30 years. We just haven't really talked about it. And now we are absolutely talking about it. Yeah. I thought one of the other interesting things to come up to talk about the the Bork <clears throat> as a shithead angle. Um, <laughs> To have it actually there as a focus of the committee with the diapers.com thing with the selling it as a loss leader yep. to, to destroy competition and then raising price afterwards. Where if your focus is – if you think the law is entirely focused on what prices go up, it allows Amazon and you know, and you have to be an existing titan to get away with it, to, to spend – to lose a fortune to gain market share. You know, and that it's super anti-competitive and completely locks out upstarts. You can't. How can you possibly lose more money than Amazon is willing to lose? Right? You you can't. And it's so, a, it just is not. It's just not compatible with the idea of how monopolies were abused a century ago when it was always to raise prices. The idea that you'd use a monopoly to lower prices and benefit in the end it just isn't there when you're only focused on. Will prices go up for the consumer? Or will prices go down and get hidden somewhere else in the stack? So like Standard right. Oil famously lowered the price of oil, but made it up because they owned everything else. And yeah. so they, they were able to squeeze competitors. So diapers.com, that's just another you know flag waving. I've mentioned Lena Khan several times now. People should just go read the article. It's called Amazon's yeah. Antitrust Paragraph. Uh, Amazon's antitrust paradox. It's on the Yale Law Journal. It's swear to God, I will, of it everywhere. Swear to God, it's in the show notes. Uh, the thrust of this article is about diapers.com. Yeah, like that was. I mean, this entire moment kicked off when she evaluated diapers.com in the context of her current antitrust law. Yeah. and said Amazon has charted a path through the law. All right. While we're talking about and, and just to wrap up, and again, this is totally off topic, but just final note. I know you'll appreciate it. Um, you know, there's a national coming, a reckoning of like, hey, old mo- some of our old monuments are to people who were uh, we should not have monuments for, right? Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> here in Philadelphia, uh, right here in Center City, we have uh, a street right at the edge of the Schuylkill River uh, called Taney Street, and there's a little league field there. And in fact, the little league in Center City, Philadelphia, is the Taney Baseball League. Never thought twice about it. Never questioned it. And now there's a movement to rename Taney Street. And I'm like, well, why? What the hell's wrong with that? Do you know who Taney is? I don't. Taney's the Supreme Court justice who wrote Dred Scott. Ah, yeah, that's not a good one. (laughs) No. (laughs) And it gets worse. Didn't even live in Philadelphia. They just wanted to name the street after they did. There were the Catholics in Philadelphia wanted to name it after the first Catholic Supreme Court justice. <laughs> of course, 
So it's like, oh yeah, we should probably rename that street. And it, it and it, the complaints are all like, do you know how mail's going to get screwed up? You know, blah blah blah. And it's like, uh, this it, it really should not have a street name. <laughs> yeah, he, didn't, he didn't get it right. I was do like, you, holy crap! That is like not like you know like oh yeah, it's a little sketchy in hindsight. It's like oh yeah, that's universally hailed as the worst Supreme Court decision <laughs> that ever was written, and quite probably ever even could be written. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'll tell you the, the Borg fact. So, right. uh, I mean, just I'm one day. I'm. It's like I am gonna end up making like the Netflix documentary about Robert Bork. One of these, like, I, 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 I'm just obsessed with how he is so wound into everything in various ways. Um, so right now, you know, many things in the world can share data to Facebook and social networks as you do them. You listen to a song on Spotify, right? You can have it auto populate what you're listening to in places. Netflix and other video services can't. The right. reason for this is that Robert Bork was nominated by Reagan to the Supreme Court and like a humor writer went to his local video store and published the list of things that he had rented from the video store. This knocked out his nomination. It's a real thing. Um, and it resulted in Congress passing a law pre- preventing the, the sharing of video rental data, which persists to this day. And that's why you can't auto send from Netflix to Facebook. <laughs> I mean, it's just like this one dude is at the middle of all of this uh, stuff. It's wild to me. Um, speaking of insane moments from the hearing, you brought up taking down statues, and it just reminded me. There was an entire moment where Jim Jordan asked Tim Cook if the 1984 ad was about cancel culture. Yes. And Tim Cook was just like, what words do I have to say to make this stop? Yeah. Like, you just see him be like, whatever yeah. you want. I don't care. Yeah. And he came amazing. up with, he came up, I, he, you could see it, and then he came up with, yeah, that ad was about Apple versus IBM. Yeah, it's like it's um uh it was not about the Macintosh. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then Zuck just ran with it. He's like, the forces of a liberalism are yeah. that was crazy. Yeah. My joke One of was, the strangest movies. My joke was that in my dream world, after Jim Jordan's rant about cancel culture and does Tim Cook agree cancel culture is harmful, that Tim Cook's answer would have been, Sir, this is a Wendy's drive thru. Yeah. That's what it was. <laughs> What are you on? What are you on? Uh, our reporter McKenna was tracking how many Mountain Dews Jim Jordan drank. And it was like multiple. Cans oh, of my Mountain God. Dew. That explains so much. <laughs> that really does. Oh, my God. That totally he's, explains he's, so he's much. He's famous for his Mountain Dew habit, which I didn't realize. It, which is truly. And, and if you look it up, it is truly a hyper-caffeinated beverage. Like is it's it? not, yeah. If you look at the caffeine content of Mountain Dew, it's, it's <laughs> and combined with the sugar, right? And if you just keep, in, it's like booze. Like you just keep drinking booze, you stay drunk. It's like you keep taking sugar, you kind of stay on the sugar high. You do crash eventually, but you can kind of ride it, you know. Anyway, oh, uh, next week's guest on the show is Jim Jordan. Uh, <laughs> I, we should be in a race to book Jim Jordan. That'd oh my be, either God. Either one of our shows would be amazing. I would love to have it. I, I would. I mean, just because the guy is, if, he is fascinating. I mean, <laughs> anyway, Neil, I thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really loved having you on to talk about this. Um, and uh, everybody can see you on Twitter at Reckless uh, with no W. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I love being here. I mean, like I said at the beginning, I think to understand the products, you need to understand the policy. But yeah. at the same time, to understand the policy, you really need to understand how the, the products work. Because yeah. the, the connection between the two yep. is so tight. And so it, I appreciate that you're as deep in the product side of it. As yeah. You. Yeah. And I'm I'm a little optimistic that the Congress was actually, you know, not as clueless, you know, Sensenberger, who's leaving <laughs> Sensenbrenner aside, you know, the, who doesn't know that Zuckerberg doesn't make Twitter. Uh, you know, 
I thought I was pretty optimistic about that. The next move is the report. I think we're all waiting yeah. on pins and needles for this report. It yeah. seems clear where Cicilline's head is, and yeah. that's going to be a big moment. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Talk to you.